Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. When the Russian Empire fell in 1917, it was the end of a sprawling, multi-ethnic empire built on autocracy and hierarchy. But that isn't all that unusual for the period. At least three other political entities fitting that description will be gone within the decade. What made this particular collapse notable is that instead of settling in as a liberal republic, Russia became the first communist power. So what caused the least developed country in Europe to adopt an ideology built on empowering a working class that barely existed within its borders? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Phil Downey. Yo, what's up? And today we're going to be talking about the Russian Revolution. So kind of a big one. Peace, easy topic. I'm a little surprised we've never gotten to it before. Not not even like you and me specifically, but like in general, the show. We've been doing this a, a very long time, and it's one of those things that it's, you kind of have to dance your way around a little bit. When you pitched it, I was like, okay, first of all, this makes sense for you and me, considering how this series started and my appearance on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also, I was I was shocked that it hadn't been done before. Like, it makes sense that, you know, you might not have, but like, it seems like one of the ones you might want to have covered. By. Yeah, you know, there are one or two topics that I've had in mind for a very long time that for whatever reason just haven't happened yet. And this was one of them. Um, there is, there is one other big hole that like, honestly, I don't know why no one has ever asked me to do it before, but we'll get to it someday. (laughs) I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you what it is after the show. I'll just bleep it out. I'll tell you right now. Uh, Oh, okay. Oh yeah. But other topics aside, uh, I'm glad we're doing this one and I'm glad I'm doing it with you because as you alluded to, uh, six and a half years ago, bonkers. Oh no. Six and a half years ago on the very, very first episode of HI 101, you and I sat down to talk about, uh, the origins of Russia. And I learned a lot that day, uh, in terms of like how very little you're willing to let go on one of these topics and how much trouble (laughs) I'm in every time I have you on. You think there might be a reason for the, the uh, prolonged absence? <laughs> it's not because I don't want you here. It's not that. But yeah, I've been, no, I've, I've been busy. Oh no, for sure, for sure. No, it's 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 quite all right. No, it's more of a it's more of a, oh man, what did I get myself into with this one? But I figured, hey, we did Russia to start off, and in that topic, we kind of went till sort of the mid fifteen hundreds. We stopped with Ivan the Terrible or Ivan the Fourth, if you like. We're we're going to be jumping way way ahead. Um, that that middle stretch, I don't know. Maybe maybe you and I can do it. Uh, yeah, third topic at some point. We're doing them out of order, but that's fine. Who you likes know, sequential storylines anyways? It's overrated, right? 
but yeah, I, I think I think the Russian Revolution is uh, really interesting in its own right, but it's also very important for the uh, fascism topic that we're building up to, right? Because a yes. core component of uh, fascism is a reaction to uh, socialism and communism, right? And without the kind of threat, uh, so to speak, of the Russian Revolution, you don't really have the same sort of momentum behind that reactionary movement. So this is one of those ones that we just have to cover before we get to uh, fascism itself. It doesn't quite make sense without talking about it. But hey, it's a good topic on its own as well. Sounds good. There are a couple of terms that we're going to need to like really define when we get to them. I'm not going to just like lay them all out at the beginning because that gets really boring. But you know, you and I have had this conversation in our, in our, you know, personal conversations, which is that like talking about politics can be really difficult sometimes if you don't very carefully define terms. Right. And, yeah. uh, that, that's something I really want to be conscious of both in this one. And as we move into fascism, because, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of terms for political ideologies and viewpoints that, depending where you are geographically, depending on your own viewpoints, personally, people use a lot of the same word to mean a lot of different things. It's almost like language is complicated or something. You know, it can get that way. A, a great example of that one, though, is socialism, right? Like, that's one of those things that, depending <laughs> on where you are, it can mean a lot of different things. It's a big range of ideas, right? I have a, a lot of leftist friends, and I have learned that not everyone agrees on a common definition of socialism. Oh, goodness, not at all. Not even close. Not even close. So we're, we're going to be talking about some of that stuff, and I think you know, in absence of the ability to definitively like nail down a, a, a universal definition of any of these things, I'm just going to like be, try to be very clear about what I mean by them. And we're just going to yeah. move on with a working definition. So that's kind of my plan for all of this. It's the best way to go about it. In my experience, mm -hmm. so, you're never going to convince any large audience of uh, no what, a, what a topic or what a, what a term is defined as, but you can at least tell them what you mean when you say it. Yeah, it's, it's the best you're going to hope for in a situation like this, right? But before we get really deep into the politics, uh, this is HI 101, and it is an episode with you. So we're going to go you know, a solid hundred years before the revolution, just to get the lay of the land, right? And we want a bit of a... Gotta do it. Yeah, you gotta, gotta do it. You gotta know where you're coming from, right? So <laughs> let's... Uh, yeah, my first, my first heading is 19th century in brief. So this is how we're going to do this thing. <laughs> It's been too long. I miss this. I'm glad I know. Off. It's so fun. Um, I'm glad to be back. 19th century in brief. So like, we're going to start with basically the French Revolution, because a lot of these political topics really do start with the, the, the French Revolution, right? It's such a it's such a hard break from the previous uh, political and social construction of the world that, uh, you know, you can't help but kind of reach back that far. And it's a big event kind of changed some things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the French Revolution isn't really a thing that you can just summarize, but I'm going to attempt to do so anyways. You know, after overthrowing the uh, the king of France, the society that was set up uh, in the aftermath was, was kind of structured on enlightenment ideals uh, that, broadly speaking, would correctly be defined as liberalism. Uh, in North America, we tend to use liberalism to, use, uh, to mean a lot of different things. Uh, in other par parts of the world, they still use very much this type of definition for it, which is you know, a focus on personal rights, on the idea of the individual as like rationally self-interested. Um, and making good decisions based on that, on the ownership of property, things like that. 
that is the type of society that was set up in the aftermath, broadly speaking. And it's also the thing that the rest of Europe turned against France as a result of. Basically, everyone else in France, including Russia, uh, goes to war with France after the after the French Revolution, and are unsuccessful for a very long time at uh, at defeating France. Which is major reason that the uh, the French Revolution was successful. If they had managed to topple the uh, the new government and reinstall uh, a king relatively quickly, well, we wouldn't really be having this conversation because uh, things would have taken a completely different course. Uh, what impact did the revolution have on like the day-to-day life of your uh, your standard french person uh i'm just curious i'm just curious if it actually made much of a difference to the people who weren't worrying about the ruling of france and more just the people living there sure i mean so th- the short answer would be yes uh it, it definitely depends on who you are what you do where you live if you're someone that's living in Paris, then yes, it has a massive impact on you because that's where most of the action is happening. Likewise, if you live in the south of France, there are just revolutionary armies just roving through the south of France and causing terror. But on the flip side, depending on uh, who you are, there may be, um, for example, you may have been having uh, real difficulty selling your uh, grain as a farmer at a competitive rate because of some of the shenanigans that the crown had been up to. And you might finally find yourself in a situation where you were actually able to make money as a farmer again. Uh, you may have been able to uh, get more land based on the, the land that was seized from the Catholic Church and redistributed, things like that. So yeah, it, it has a pretty significant impact. There's also a lot of stuff that goes out that uh, has like a little more arguable impact. So things like putting in place the metric system or uh, changing the names of the, uh, the the months of the year and things like that, where you could argue that you know you could easily brush it aside as as complete bunk and yeah, kind of go on with little, your day. Little surface level. But on the other hand, like just because it's little doesn't mean it's not like annoying. Like, can you imagine just like. Sorry, Phil, like June has a different name now. <laughs> like, how long is that going to take you to get used to? Yeah, no kidding. Well, we can just look to our parents about the change from Imperial to Metric and see oh, how sure. much they love that. Sure, yeah, absolutely. It's it's not entirely complete in Canada to this day for, for good reason. Um, so, oh, sorry, I just have one more thing. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the south of France. Mm-hmm. Why were they like the last holdouts on revolution or something? Yeah, there were... It, we're talking about Russia today, so I'm trying to keep it very brief. But yeah, there was some <laughs> there there were some people that were a little bit less keen on the idea of specifically the uh, government that came into power during you know kind of the 1792-1793 period. So right. uh, suppressing uh, them was part of the uh, the government's plan to kind of exert power to kind of prove that they were in control in a certain way. Right. Um, I'll, I'll just say you brought up France. It's your fault. You should be happy I didn't ask you to tell me about how France was founded. Why am I getting yelled at here? I'm just trying to talk about the French Revolution a little bit. It's important. It's important because what ends up coming out of the French Revolution is Napoleon, which is uh, very reactionary against the French Revolution, but in in other ways an extension of it. And uh, once again, those wars that started against the revolutionary government in France continues against the French Empire under Napoleon. And famously, Napoleon's downfall comes when he tries invading Russia to 
disastrous consequences in 1812, right? This is where you get the whole, you know, don't, inv- you know, don't engage Russia in a land war type history meme, right? Um, mm. And the reason that they're not terribly successful in, in Russia is that Russia is huge, but Perfect. Russia, but Russia is also uh, empty. Very empty. I think we talked about this on the, uh, on the first episode. Yeah, of I was course. Like, you know, Russia's big where is everyone it's kind of a defining feature and and what's more is you're kind of pointing to here most of the population is on you know kind of the western borders of russia Uh, Mm -hmm. the further you go east the more sparse it becomes so essentially when napoleon starts invading uh, alexander the first the the czar at the time goes nope we're not helping out there and engages in a scorched earth policy which is essentially well leave your farm burn it down behind you now the french have no food we'll see how they fare with that this is this is a kind of a hardcore way of dealing with an invasion but you know napoleon's armies are famously kind of independent based on their ability to scavenge food from where they are they're not you know they're fast and they're mobile because they don't have this huge long supply chain going back to uh france they're somewhat self-sufficient in that manner and you end up in the middle of the russian steppes and every farm you come across has been burned to the ground no things aren't going to go well yeah i mean you get only get to play that card so many times where someone picks up on it and says all right well i found the solution to it mm-hmm. now what yeah pretty much but the thing is napoleon never got to it before he was uh, decisively defeated by the rest of the coalition so mm-hmm. because of that alexander the first looks like this military genius he's considered the savior of europe by all of these other leaders he ends up being like a major player in in negotiating the treaties at the end of the napoleonic wars right and it's really seen as like an arrival of russia on the world stage because um as we've talked about or as we talked about in the other one russia is always kind of seen as lagging behind the rest of Europe to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. It's used as a benchmark of like not doing well, as in like if there's some aspect of your country uh, that is worse than uh, than Russia, then it's like, oh, no, that's real bad. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you're doing better than Russia in this era, that that's kind of the consideration is like, oh, as long as you're doing better than Russia, you're fine. I'm um, sure that won't have any long term impacts on the cultural ego of russia yeah it's weird how they're always trying to prove things huh you know alexander the first is considering some liberal reforms based on some of the things that are found successful at the end of the napoleonic wars which is a fairly common thing you know after everybody spent all this time fighting the revolution it's kind of like well maybe maybe some of these things have merit and a lot of that is groundswell support for these things it's not necessarily top down right a lot of the uh rulers of europe at this point in time are still fairly authoritarian what's a constitution exactly like you know there's not a lot in the ways of republican style governance of constitutions of of human rights that's all stuff that is fairly new with the french revolution and you know, to, to be fair, I am leaving out the American Revolution as well, which is where all of this stuff really, that's kind of the first uh, crack at all of this. But that's yeah. a succession, that's a secession uh, revolution, right? It's just splitting off that's from Britain fair. and starting your own thing. What's different about France is that it's it's still France. It's just a completely different France comes up in exactly the same place. And that's a lot you're, more scary. You're lucky I already know about how America was founded because you would have had to answer that. We gotta get we gotta get to Lenin at some point here, man. <laughs> it's just the way we gotta do it. Alexander the First dies in 1825, though, before any of this stuff can really be implemented. And by the 1820s, 1830s, any sort of 
political will from rulers in Europe is really starting to die down in terms of like putting more uh, Republican or liberal measures in place. You know, Napoleon is gone. Things have calmed back down. And there's this sort of sense that like, well, the citizens must, you know, want order. They must want to be ruled to some extent. Right. And that's a that's a fairly common uh, uh, view from a lot of these rulers and it's being actively pushed by certain of them but you know that that's that's where we're kind of coming from on a lot of this yeah basically what you're saying is inertia happens essentially yeah it's it's a uh, it's it's entropy i suppose of uh, of of revolutionary will when he dies in 1825 he's uh, succeeded by his brother nicholas the 1st who was also kind of considering some some you know liberalizing measures but is met immediately with revolt by a bunch of russian officers these officers had been in western europe and they were just getting like antsy for putting in some of these reforms they really wanted it for russia they saw it as russia's way forward and nicholas kind of goes well hold on like i'm i was trying to do this stuff but like you're attacking me literally within months of me taking the crown Maybe I won't. Actually, this uh, this revolt is uh, is known as the the Decemberist revolt because it happens in December. That's how they name these things in Russia. It's kind of irritating to be honest with you, but you know this this immediate uh, revolt within a first couple of months turns Nicholas into like a very uh, anti-reform leader, and he's going to spend his entire reign, which is quite long actually. He's going to be in power for thirty years transitioning to this idea of uh, the, the slogan is, is orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. Um, a policy of Russification is what they call it. He, he's uh, looking to, you know, Russia in this period is very uh, diverse. There's a lot of different uh, ethnic groups that are under the, the umbrella of the empire, both uh, further east in, in Siberia and uh, on the western borders where, you know, you have Finland, which is part of the Russian Empire. You have Poland, which is uh, absorbed by or is partially absorbed by the Russian Empire in the 1790s, uh, kind of split between Russia and, and Germany, actually. And Nicholas goes like, well, OK, no, I, I think actually what I want to do is build like a, a strong, united Russia. I want people who aren't just attacking me because they feel a little bit differently. I want people to understand that I'm in charge here. And mm. the people who listen to me the best, in, in his opinion, are, you know, real Russians, quote, quote, quote. Oh, right. Lord. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very it's a very strongly nationalist policy that he's going to put in place. Right. And this is really solidified for him with uh, the 1831 November uprising in Poland, where, um, you know, strangely enough, all of these formerly Polish uh, nationalists, currently ethnically Polish people, aren't terribly fond of being forced to speak Russian and uh, try to rise up. Now, it's it's quashed. It's violently cracked down on. But, um, you know, for Nicholas, he's just seeing this as proof that what he needs to do is make sure everyone is really Russian. You're going to hate me. <laughs> oh, no. What? Where did Poland come from? Short version. Poland is a Western Slavic country that uh, in a lot of ways mirrors the Eastern Slavic uh, rise of Russia. Um, yeah, that, that was... I was thinking about this earlier today because I was kind of preparing mentally for what I know about this and... The idea or the, the the thought of Poland came around and like, I'm just curious, like how they ended up being a separate entity in the first place. 
Yeah, they they would never have been considered Russian uh, until they're they're subjugated by the Russian Empire. But there's no, uh, you know, there's there's some back in time uh, similarities in the ethnicities. But as a as a political entity, they've never really been um, mm-hmm. similar. In fact, Poland for a very long time in the kind of 1500s ish would have been one of the most powerful uh, uh, states in Europe militarily. Uh, Poland, um, Poland, Lithuania. They were they were kind of united under one crown for some time there. Um, we we talked a little bit about Poland in the episode on anti-Semitism recently. They were one of the few uh, nations that was both friendly to uh, Jewish Europeans and strong enough to provide them with some military uh, protection, which is why by the time you get to the 20th century, the number of Jews you see in Poland is is so high compared to other areas of, of uh, Europe that were expelling them over and over. Um, Interesting. I would be I would be interested in, in doing a topic on Poland at some point, but uh, you know not not today. <laughs> of course, of course. I'm uh, infamously always behind on HI 101, but uh, you already know this, Adam. But mm-hmm. I'm wildly catching up. Yeah, um, you've been burning through them lately. No, you're you're more caught up on a lo- on it than a lot of people I know. Don't. Nothing to apologize for there. I don't know how I'm, I'm just up with this show. I'm just annoyed that like even with all of my mad catch up, that still pulled one out on me from an episode I haven't heard yet. It's extremely recent. I, I don't blame you in the least. I know. I saw it in the feed. It was pretty new. <laughs> in 1848, Europe explodes. There are revolutions everywhere, and you know Nicholas, having now spent several decades as a a staunchly autocratic, uh, nationalist-minded ruler is one of the primary reactionary forces against the 1848 revolutions. 1848 is hard to pin down. It depends on where you are necessarily in Europe, uh, what exactly your goals are. But in general, it's a reckoning of the aftermath of the French Revolution. There's a lot of discussion of what, you know, number one, was the revolution good? Number two, which part of the revolution was good? Number three, what good did it do anybody? And that comes out in both kind of social ideals, uh, you know, talking about the, you know, the universal declaration of the rights of man, things about like, you know, what what people's inherent rights are as human beings, um, but also in political things like why don't people have constitutions? Why are so few people given the vote, even though there are countries that are claiming to have a democratic process of some sort? You know, why are we things like that? And they're, yeah. they're being they're being figured out both in, in, you know, sort of government committees, but also in the streets to some extent. And that specific aspect, the uh, violent protest aspect of it, Nicholas is going to be one of the main people cracking down on that. 1848 mm-hmm. doesn't get anywhere in Russia uh, to, to a point where by the time he's finished suppressing any revolts that are happening in Russia, he turns around and helps Hungary and Prussia with their own revolts sending Russian forces in to help keep order. He's exerting power beyond his own borders in this conflict. I have a few questions. Sure. They, they might take us back a bit, actually. Okay. But I, I think I just need to... Back in topics, not in time. Sure. <laughs> so much. Uh, so we had France undergo the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. And then Napoleon happened. Mm-hmm. Napoleon, I assume, wanted not the revolution 
like he wanted to go back to a one person on top system yes <laughs> what's, the, what's the sigh about yeah, i mean it's it's vastly more complicated than that i guess is is the the sigh it's it's a matter of yes he wanted to go back to one person on top but by the same account you know the source of his power was in the same ideals that the french revolution had been fought over so he had himself to uh, you know declared um you know, initially it was, oh, I'll forget the exact title. I think it was premier and then it was premier for life. And then it was switched to emperor after that, you know, and, and there's, there's legislation that goes through that makes it. So it's him and his, his heirs that are the leaders of France from now on, but like, it's all done through the national assembly, right? Through uh, elected officials that are making those determinations, not through an assertion that he has a divine right to rule, which is, uh, in a lot of people's mind a key distinction between him and the bourbons right like the 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 ruling uh family of of uh of france um it's no longer a matter of i've i've been ordained by god to rule it's that i've been chosen by the people to rule and so yeah he he is quite uh top down about everything sure but like he's also you know continuing to promote liberal ideals it's just under a very structured system that benefits him very directly and very um explicitly so was the impetus to stop him mostly just because he was taking so much land yes. and not ideologically well i mean it's 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 both to some extent i mean when when napoleon is defeated they they ask france to basically roll it back to oh my goodness it's a bourbon that goes back in place but still leading a Republic. I'm going to get that wrong. I, I forget. It gets so confusing. <laughs> it's messy. I'm guessing. It's it's not. They, they don't. France France will never have like a, a monarchy again. In you know on a long term basis, um, right. they'll have. Uh, um, there's there's another Louis that ends up being a, a leader, but it's not as a as a you know divine right uh, absolute monarch. That's never going to happen again. So. After after fighting out the Revolutionary Wars in the late 1790s, there's kind of this determination that, like, I don't think we can actually stop France from wanting this because it's not just about a government coup. It's about the people actually want uh, an Enlightenment-based republic. Um, there are too many people who want republicanism. And yes, there are other absolute monarchs in France that have, or in, in Europe that have issues with that, but they kind of got, realized that at a certain point, the French people won't stand for another monarch. They're just going to chop their head off too. When it comes to Napoleon, it's like, yeah, he's extremely expansionistic. He takes over the vast majority of continental Europe, right? I mean, the the British are I've fighting from, yeah, they're they're fighting from like the shores of Portugal, trying to get yeah. a, to keep a foothold there. They're only really, you know, confined to uh, the east by the fact that Russia is the rest of Asia. It's it's a matter of getting this guy under control before he can take over all of Europe. Um, the places that aren't even directly under France uh, French control are client states. So, I mean, there, there's so much disruption there that the goal after Napoleon is to find some semblance of balance. And what you'll see there is kind of a, a sort of a replication of the balance after the last big disruption in Europe, which was the Thirty Years' War, right? And that uh, 1648 Peace of Westphalia, where all the major powers kind of went, well, we're going to have our own spheres of influence. None of us are yes. so big that the rest of us can't check the power of the others. 
the, yes. the situation after Napoleon is going to reflect that where it's like, okay, well, you know, France, we're going to carve out enough of France and, and kind of hobble them enough that uh, Britain and Prussia and Austria aren't, you know, completely incapable and Russia uh, aren't completely incapable of stopping them again. And if we all kind of stick to our spheres, then things should work out pretty well. And the rest of the 19th century does tend to work out that way. It's a relatively... And, and relatively is doing a lot of heavy lifting here as a word in this <laughs> yeah. sentence, but it's a relatively peaceful uh, century in specifically continental Europe. Now, there's there's plenty of conflict, you know, through uh, uh, colonies and other client states overseas, but you don't have that same Napoleonic war like armies marching through Belgium kind of uh, kind of thing for a long time. OK, next thing <laughs> you mentioned oh, no. that Alexander the first. Yeah was around during the hey napoleon stop being napoleon mm -hmm. phase yes and then you said his brother nicholas yeah napoleon or, and that's uh, who we've been talking about that's right uh, alexander didn't have any children so it went to his brother right so nicholas you said was starting to lean liberal but then some liberal-minded folks revolted is that what i is that did i did i catch that correctly they thought that nicholas was moving too slowly and they tried to overthrow him in exchange for, I believe, another brother who they thought was going to be quicker. But Nicholas was wow. literally in, in, in the process of pulling together some reforms. And, and by reforms, I mean he's talking about looking at like representative assemblies in a very limited capacity, which would be about the level of, of uh, republicanism most uh, monarchs in Europe would be considering at that time. Um, kind of backfired on the revolutionaries there. A little bit. Yeah, a lot, actually. Um, <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> well, and I mean, that's that's if we're going to take anything away from today's discussion, it's that revolutions are messy and they 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 don't they pretty much never go the way that anyone's expecting them to. Sometimes you think that you're you're hurrying things along and what you're actually doing is is delaying them by decades in some cases. In 1853, uh, the Crimean War breaks out. And this is a Again, we're not getting deep into this. This is a conflict between uh, Russia and a coalition of the Ottoman Empire, Britain, and France over some land claims in Crimea, which is, you know, in uh, the south of, of Ukraine. We're all kind of familiar with that from recent current events stuff. Mm -hmm. It was kind of being held by the Ottoman Empire. It was contested between the Ottoman Empire and Russia. And what we really need to know about the Crimean War is two things. Number one, it's kind of the first modern war in the context of like some of the weapons that were being used in terms of the uh, strategies being used. It's very much setting the stage for like the the, the American Civil War kind of thing. So you're looking at um, a, a very big change in tactics from like Napoleonic Wars to uh, something that's resembling basically what we're going to start World War One off with. And when Crimea starts, remember, everyone still has this image of Russia as being like the savior of Europe from the Napoleonic Wars. Is that mentality of you don't want to be worse than Russia still around at this point? Or was their savior of Europe moment enough to turn that around? At least militarily, they were considered uh, a much more formidable force than they would have been before the French Revolution. It was like, oh, they finally arrived. They have a military that can fight. Turns out that the military was never really all that well led or organized. They just have a lot of people <laughs> and we're throwing them at the French as well as the the, the scorched earth tactics that we talked about. And yeah. this becomes very, very clear 
in the Crimean War, where there is terrible execution and like embarrassing defeat of the Russian troops over and over and over. And everyone goes, you know, hey, you're a bunch of phonies. You're never good at this. <laughs> Nicholas actually doesn't live to see the end of the Crimean War, which means that he never lived to see his country defeated by that coalition very, very badly. He died in 1855, and uh, his son Alexander II takes over. Alexander had always been fairly interested in kind of, or, or he had at least outwardly been very supportive of his father's initiatives to russify uh, the, the the empire. But as soon as Nicholas died, Alexander uh, kind of showed a new side of himself. He was, I, I think, partially tired of being you know, the ruler of the 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 most backward com- country in Europe is kind of how he was feeling about it. And coming to power in the midst of the Crimean War being beaten very badly probably didn't help things. Where other rulers had taken that as a, as a cue to kind of dig in, Alexander very much took that as a an opportunity to go, okay, well, we need to fix, fix what's broken here. And there were a lot of things broken about Russia. Their economy was extremely weak. Their development was very, very low. And something that we haven't brought up yet, even into the 1850s, uh, Russia still had a robust surf system. They were still a feudal country. What century did that sort of turn for most of Europe? I mean, most of them were limping out of that several hundred years before this. Uh, depends That's on the country and even the the area of the country, but yeah, the the feudal system is is long gone from most of these places for two three hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not everywhere, and in a lot of cases, not officially abolished, but still, there are as many as twenty three million serfs in Russia in the eighteen sixties, out of about sixty two million sixty three million Russians. So, like a solid like forty percent of people are. Serfs, and what I mean by serfs is that they are obligated to a lord. They do not own land. They work a lord's land, and they're uh, obligated to give a portion, often as much as a third, of the produce uh, of that land to their lord, just for the uh, you know privilege of working it. Essentially, they yeah. do not have freedom of movement. They're not allowed to leave the land they've they've uh, been born on. And there are a lot of other freedoms that they don't have. For example, you would need the approval of your lord to marry someone. Like very, very much like meddling in like very, what will you consider very basic human rights? Yeah. This is still in place in Russia in the 1850s. And it's something that had been talked about getting rid of in the past. In fact, this is one of the things that Alexander I had been considering at one point. But it had never actually come about. So... Alexander II's, uh, one of the first things that he wants to do as czar is is emancipate the serfs. And that's exactly what he does in 1861. And a lot of people kind of look at this and go like, oh, okay, great. The serfs are freed. You know, we've gotten rid of the terrible uh, feudal system that we had. Everything's great, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes. <laughs> Depends on who you are. First of all, they only freed uh, privately held serfs. There were also serfs that were obligated to the Russian government or to the crown, which they're going to be an extra five years or so before they're emancipated. There's also the issue of trying to navigate freeing 23 million serfs with how upset a whole bunch of lords are. And I think it's really easy for us to look back and say, well, I kind of care a little more about the 23 million serfs. Thank you. But 
these people who actually own the land are also nobility in Russia. And there's sort of a feeling that they need to recompense them somehow. And instead of yeah. the crown stepping up and paying them or, or uh, you know, compensating them in some way, what they decide to do is put the costs of the land that these landlords are losing to the peasants onto the peasants themselves. They're expected to pay Great. off the entire, well, not the entire cost, sorry, 75% of the costs. Um, in installment payments, it's not a lump sum. They have 49 years to pay it. There is interest, though. <laughs> Of course. These these payments are so high that often what ends up happening is that these former serfs are often worse off financially than they were as serfs because before at least they were able to keep two thirds of what they produced and live off yeah. of it, some, sometimes sell it. You have no money left after the the repayments to in any way develop your property. Yeah, this sounds like serfdom just under a different payment structure. Structure. Absolutely. Well, what ends up happening in a lot of cases is that in order to make enough money to make these payments, they end up working the land of their previous landlords in order to like earn wages to pay it mm. off. And what ends up happening is they neglect their own land. Which means that the production capacity of your uh, of Russia goes down because no one's actually, you know, growing grain. They're busy working elsewhere, uh, yeah. usually on cash crops, and this leads to uh, famine in the 1860s. So, the dominoes—they sure are a fallen. Didn't go super well. I have a somewhat tangentially related question. Sure. Did the delay in getting rid of serfdom? Uh, affect Russia's participation in the Industrial Revolution in any way? Yes, absolutely it did. Because you don't have an availability of wage laborers. Yeah. 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 No, you're absolutely right. That is amazing. I listened to that one recently. It's a good one. It was a good episode. I, th- I thought it turned out really well. Um, one yeah. of my favorites, actually. And and a lot of the a lot of the dynamics that you see in the Industrial Revolution are completely absent in uh, Russia because of that. Um, yeah. Those serfs that we just talked about or those peasants that we just talked about aren't even necessarily the worst off ones because there are some, especially in Poland, um, end up either never receiving land or had to sell the land that they had, uh, that they had been given after the emancipation back to the landlords in order to make enough money to pay the debts for the land that they had been given from the emancipation. And then what? What do they do then? Well, then they become wage laborers. It's exactly what you're talking about with the Industrial Revolution. All of a sudden, you have a high availability of these people who the only, you know, the only value that they can offer is their labor. Anti-capitalist ire is rising. (laughs) There, There are many, many new issues that come up because of all of this change on like a, an administrative level, right? So what ends up happening is the czar is forced to devolve some power to like local government offices called Zemstva, which leads to an erosion of like centralized power. The czar yeah. has always been like a very, very top down system. There aren't a lot of, it, it's not like what you would see in like, even in France where like up until like Louis the 14th, you know, the French king basically had a lot of control around the Paris Versailles region. And then like the further away you got, the more, you know, whoever your duke or baron is, has a, a greater impact on your life. Right. Yeah. Russia tried to keep as centralized as possible. But these these new offices 
end up um, trying to, these Nuzemstva, try to deal with some of these disputes between peasants and former landlords, and often not terribly well in terms of like ruling in the favor of the peasants. It's it's really becomes a symbol for these newly emancipated serfs of government inadequacy and uh, a lack of um, protection by the government. In general, Russia had sort of this paternalistic image of the czar, right? It's this idea of yeah. like, he's the father of the entire nation. And and there is obligation to the czar that comes out of that. But there's also obligation that the czar has to you uh, to protect you, right? And yeah. yeah, it's a little infantilizing, but there is at least some uh, sense of reciprocity there. Yeah. With the introduction of the Zemsva, that goes away completely because it's not this idea of the czar who, like, if you were ever to actually speak to him, he would care about you. Now it's the guy in the office down the road who just screwed you out of last year's harvest because he can. And that goodwill starts eroding very quickly. I have a question you almost certainly won't be able to answer. Okay. Because it's, it's a numbers thing. Okay. Um, what does the population of Russia look like compared to the other European countries at this point? Oh yeah, I don't, I don't have that information in front of me. Um, you, I'm trying to think if I have a benchmark on anybody at this point in time. Um, it, it's, it's not the most populated country, but it has a lot of people. Yeah, there are there are more uh, densely populated countries further west. For sure, if but that, also if that helps, how how could Russia not be? undensely populated well yeah exactly that's that's exactly <laughs> it there are another group of people that look at this failure of emancipation and see systemic problems from it which is these intellectual and academic circles who um you know in in these in these circles are these people are often uh much further left leaning than the rest of the country and much better educated obviously um mm-hmm. they are academics and in general, the solution that's seen among these groups of people is that, you know, at the bare minimum, Russia needs to move away from autocracy into some sort of uh, Republican system. But there are also a lot of them that think that a Republican system doesn't go far enough, that uh, Russia is in a unique situation. By the 1860s, socialism is becoming a much more appealing idea. It's a much more mainstream idea in Europe. And when I say socialism, I do in in some cases mean specifically like Marxism and communism, but there are other types of socialism that are prevalent at this point in time. So when we're talking about socialism, we're talking about some sort of collectivism, uh, an idea of uh, society where uh, your obligation extends beyond just individual uh, responsibilities and a government system that is predicated on the idea that uh, people's rights extend beyond just their you know ability to try and scrape together as much property as possible. There are also economic factors that come in, but again, the range of socialism uh, at this point in time makes it really hard to pin down unless you get like very specific. So if you're talking about Marxist communism, yes, there are ideas about how the how the economy would work in terms of state-owned means of production that we can get, you know, very specific about. But these people don't have a consensus idea of what that might look like. 
And in fact, something that becomes very popular in Russia specifically is a form of anarchism. It's a, it's usually a, a communo anarchism or sorry, uh, sorry, anarcho-communism. I I misuse that term. Um, it's still familiar with it. I knew what you meant. Yeah. Anarchy is one of those words that means a much different thing today in common usage than it doesn't necessarily, you know, classical anarchy, uh, political theory terms, specifically anarchy. It's coming back though. It it is, it is. But, uh, you know, for a very long time, it just means chaos, right? It's just a synonym for chaos. Um, no, it's an idea that having a hierarchical state isn't necessarily a good thing and that, you know, relationships between people and between entities should be, uh, negotiated and, uh, mutually agreed upon um, is kind of a very brief, not super accurate version of it. But that's sort of what they're leaning towards. The simplest explanation I've ever been given is that there's no such hierarchy or there's no such thing as a just hierarchy. Yeah, that's a that's a very common saying about it. Yeah. Um, The reason that Marxism struggles initially in Russia, which is ironic, you know, considering where we're going, the reason it struggles Mm -hmm. is that Marxism is predicated on specifically the power of the workers, of laborers. And Marx's prediction for um, the course of history, which is kind of a grandiose thing to say, but that is what he's making, is that, uh, you know, history is a a series of uh, turning over who has control, who has power, and that in the current setup, and by current I mean the mid-19th century, there's a uh, separation between those who uh, work, who labor, and sell their labor for wages, and those who own the means of production. And the argument being that the the people who own the means of production don't actually add any value, and therefore they're just leeching off the, 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 the labor of, of workers. The problem with Marxism in specifically Russia is you've literally just gotten rid of feudalism, which is an entire step back on the chain of progress in Marxism. When you're reading Marx, he's assuming that feudalism is in the rearview mirror and that you're deep into a capitalist system. Mm. Anarchism doesn't care about that progression at all. There's this there's there's a number of social movements that come up in Russia in the 1860s that involve this romanticization of the peasants. There's this idea in Russia of going to the people, which can mean different things, but it's this idea that like we can learn things from the peasants. They have like a they have a wisdom to them and it's like in reality these people are just like please I want to not starve. Like they don't, they they have nothing to say about anarcho-syndicalism versus anarcho-communism. They have absolutely no, they they have no opinion on the matter, but all these intellectuals have this, this process of like, they want to go out into the, they want to go out into Ukraine where these, these, there are these peasants laboring away and there's this quiet, you know, dignity to that or whatever. And really what they end up doing is going there, being mistrusted by these people, having a terrible time and coming back and wondering what's wrong with them, that they weren't enlightened by the experience. Right. But what they're positing about the peasants in Russia is that there's something very specific about the way the peasants are organized, which is it's, it's known as the mirror. The mirror is, um, it translates more or less as like the community, how is this word spelled? M-I-R, just like the uh, space station. Got it. The mirror is this idea that the peasants, when when the land is split up, and, and this is going back to like uh, uh, serfdom kind of organizational structures, when the land is split up, it doesn't necessarily go to individuals 
like you specifically are not given a parcel of land. Often what happens is that the mir or the community takes on uh, a village or, or a, a, an area of land in trust for a number of households. And they have the power to redistribute this land periodically as needed. So if somebody moves away, that land might be split up again among their neighbors, right? Uh, likewise, nobody working that land has the right to individually sell it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. The land itself isn't their possession. The production that comes from the land is, and that's what they would be selling off. That's the kind of the philosophy of these these serfs. And this is very much coming from a place of never having a concept of owning land before anyways, right? But it seems to be working out fairly well for them. And are, there are all these anarcho-communists who are looking at this and going, that that's pure communism right there. This is what we should be looking to for a model, right? Like they've been doing communism this entire time. Again, this is not actually communism, but there are intellectuals who are looking to it as a model. It's closer to communism than big states have probably come at this point. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Any any experiments in communism to this point are, are small and short-lived unless you want to look to, you know, very specific insular communities, right? You know, you got, uh, you'll have the, the Paris Commune coming up in the 1870s, but, you know, even that's going to only last a few months. Um, yeah. Anyway, the... the uh, these people who are like obsessed with this idea of, of the, the proto-communist peasant are uh, known as Narodniks. Narod meaning uh, people, but like more in like the, the same sense as like Volk is in uh, uh, German, like the folk, mm. like the, yeah. the, the prototypical people, like the, uh, the nation. These Narodniks are trying to leverage the peasants as a revolutionary base. And there's a party uh known as uh the narodnaya valia the the people's will formed out of this and yes they are very high-minded about all of this but also they figure that the best way to move things along and get a, a class consciousness going is to just start assassinating people they oh good they blow yep. up they blow up so many government officials like a lot <sighs> like a lot like a lot there are so many assassinations between the 1860s and 1880s. Alexander II has no less than four assassination attempts on him. And the fourth one in 1881 is actually successful. This is the, this is the, the czar that's actually trying to make some sort of change in society. Now, was the Not emancipation, was the emancipation uh, well considered? No, it didn't work <laughs> that no. well. Are, are people, actually gone backwards but, but was he trying to do good yeah and and it's one of those things where it's like okay well you have like at best the ability to pick your opponent and this is a person who's at least attempting to do some good is this a you know anyways these people are are, are um radicals there's there's no question about that and and yes you're absolutely right for them alexander is not uh, making changes quickly enough. So in 1881, yeah, there are uh, three bombers that are prepared to kill him. The second one manages to get a bomb into his uh, uh, carriage. He doesn't die right away, which is right. kind of worse for bombings, if you know much about yes. how bombings work. He ends up dying in front of his son, Alexander III. This will have... Oh, I'm, I'm sure that's fine. It will have a formative effect on Alexander III's rule. It's weird. He goes right back to enforced crucifixion. 
he goes right back to Alexander I's ideas about uh, orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. It's funny how... Grandpa had a good idea there. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny, too, because the day that Alexander II is killed is the same day that he approved a representative assembly for Russia, a permanent sitting representative assembly. And its mandate was going to be to consider further reforms for modernizing uh, Russia. Alexander III cancels this as one of his first acts. It's is there does this trend continue of of, you know, these liberals just shooting themselves in the foot with their radicalism? (laughs) We'll see, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely does. Of course it does. We got to We got to start. We got to start moving along. I'm looking at the time and we're going way too slow. Uh, He 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 is a very traditional czar, Alexander III. He immediately blames uh, the Jews for the uh, assassination and uh, begins a massive campaign of pogroms against Jewish people, over 200 forced expulsions, uh, executions are committed against Jewish citizens. Uh, This is going to cause a massive exodus of Jewish people into the rest of Europe, which will Mm -hmm. indirectly contribute to some of the anti-Jewish sentiment in the late 19th century in Europe. And it's- You've been planning this arc for a while, haven't you? I sure have. It's weird because the Narodnaya Valia took very explicit credit for the assassination. And Alexander III still kind of goes like, no, I think it was the Jews, though. What What's up with that? Why? Um, I mean, there's a there's a massive through line of, of anti-Semitism in Russia, mainly stemming from the fact that there were very few uh, Jewish people in Russia before Poland was rolled in in the 1790s. Mm an easy other to target yeah and and beyond as as it often is exactly beyond that specific historical event it's just all the same reasons that anti-semitism has existed in europe for the last two thousand years uh again see my episode on anti-semitism um yeah but but beyond that it's not it's not anything specific beyond pretty much your garden variety extreme anti-semitism so yeah that sentence makes me ill Oh, it's it's horrific. I I, I completely understand. I, I mean, I suppose there's probably a, an argument that could be made there for leveraging the situation for some sort of expropriation of land. Uh, well, what's the difference? But I, I yeah, well, exactly. That's kind of where I'm coming from on this as well. His reign is relatively short. He dies in 1894 of kidney failure, and his son Nicholas II takes the throne. This is the last czar of Russia. Nikki too. I once had a history teacher describe uh, Nicholas II as the kind of guy who would be pretty good at running a hardware store. <laughs> this is this is not the first time you've told me about this, and it's not the first time you've used it on the podcast either. No, I actually I actually used that uh, to talk about. I think Wilhelm II. I, I borrowed that phrase for. I think um, he might have used it even more recently too. Possibly, uh, it's fresh. It's fresh on my memory from my recent uh, episodes that I've been listening to. It's just so succinct. The man was yeah. not cut out to rule a nation. He just wasn't. He worked hard. He tried. He wanted to do well, but he was an absolute failure at delegation. He insisted on doing everything for himself, like literally everything. The point of being a czar is delegating tasks that you don't want to do or that you're not good at to the people that will do them for you or are good at them. He didn't. He would he would work 16 hour days, like making sure to like sign all the things himself and make the decisions himself, 
which is not a good way to rule. Doesn't sound like it. But he had been he had been taught by his father that the czar is an autocrat. He has the ultimate authority, and that it needs to be wielded responsibly. And the way that he took that on was well intentioned, but misguided. And this is the man that is going to be guiding us into the Russian Revolution. Let's let's uh, take a break for a second and talk about Russian politics about the year 1900. There okay. are three main groups that we need to keep our eyes on. Okay, the first group is known as the Cadets. That's with a K. They are a constitutional democratic party formed in 1905. They are the liberal contingent of the nobility. They are made up of yeah, so so liberal nobles. Yeah, that's. Not a combination of words I expected to hear. But but by by 1900, that is a sort of fad position to take to some extent within it. the within yeah. nobility, especially less there's, wealthy nobility. There's a market for it. Yeah, especially so less... someone's gonna someone's gonna pop up to fill it. Well, look at it this way: if you're a noble, uh, if you're noble born, but are not wealthy enough or not close enough to the autocrat to actually have the ability to exert direct power, your best bet of getting a say in things is some sort of constitutional democracy, which will almost certainly have a limited voting base, but you as a noble will almost certainly have a high position within government because of your position as nobility. It is a move up for you. Fascinating. Does that that make sense? No, perfect sense. It's Uh just, I've been thinking a lot about chess recently. Fair enough. And it's, it's, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a chess move. I I follow you. The cadets are also made up of industrial capitalists, which are now all of a sudden a thing in Russia. There are finally factories and whatnot taking advantage of all of those uh, serfs who uh, have no land now. So they're even worse off and, and need some way of getting money. There are also serfs that uh, work seasonally in the factories. They'll leave their homes, uh, their home villages to move into St. Petersburg or Moscow, work uh, the winters in uh, the factories, and then go home for the summer to work their farms. So there is some cross-culture there, but overall the worker base is not large in, in Russia. And hey, then, call back to uh, episode one. When did the uh, when did the capital switch from Kiev to Moscow? Uh, no, I asked it then, but I don't remember. It's actually not Mos- Moscow right now. Um, yeah, it's it's currently St. Petersburg. It'll be when Moscow after the revolution. I can't remember if Moscow was the it, it was the capital for a while back then. I don't remember when all the moves are made. It's not really important to our story today. Sure. So, you know. There are also members of the intelligentsia who are members of the cadets who believe that a, a constitutional democracy is the the best way forward for for russia it's very much like in the spirit of alexander ii right like this reform to a constitutional monarchy to move towards liberalism and modernize uh russia into the sort of state that the rest of europe is already moving towards in most cases the idea of Hmm. kind of peaceful social reform through uh, a, a slow movement of the social and political structure yeah. The second group uh, we want to mention are the Socialist Revolutionary Party, or SRs. These are established in 1901, and it is a loose association, but this is essentially essentially the legitimized descendants of the Narodnaya Volya. So it's a bunch of ex, or sometimes ex, anarchists who uh, see the... For them, the revolutionary in socialist revolutionary is not a Marxist one. They agree with Marx on cause, but not on solution. For them, the revolution is uh, centered in the empowerment of the peasants. They see it as, well, I mean, 
I was going to say they see it as the largest uh, uh, group in Russia. It is the largest group in Russia by a long shot. And yeah. they, they see that as the way forward towards uh, modernizing uh, Russia. This is not like a legitimized party in the sense that they have like any say in government. In fact, they continue to assassinate political rivals until 1909. But it is a fairly formalized uh, uh, group. There are leaders of the Socialist uh, Revolutionary Party. I'm going to refer to them as the SRs from now on, just because it gets okay. a little bit old. Uh, and that's a fairly uh, common, like you you would find the, the abbreviation SRs, uh, SR in the literature fairly frequently. It's, it's well agreed upon. Then you have the Russian Socialist Democratic Labor Party. Established in 1898. Sorry, I had to catch my breath after that one. Yeah, that's our Marxist. These are Marxist communists, and they are primarily composed of intellectuals and uh, some working class like labor organizers. And we don't have to call them Russian Social Democratic Labor Party anymore because in 1903, they are going to split into two major groups you may have heard of, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. I have. The Mensheviks, Menshevik actually means minority. Uh, they're actually the far larger uh, contingent of the uh, the party. Um, nice little irony there. Well, they were named by the Bolsheviks, who were very small, but chose to name themselves as majority. It's funny how that stuck, huh? Yeah. The Mensheviks see liberalism slash capitalism as a necessary step on the road to proletariat revolution. So they're taking Marx as a roadmap. And... While they would like to see a communist uh, society, they're going like, well, we're not even we're not even capitalist yet. So guess we got to work to put capitalism in place, which is mm -hmm. a little counterintuitive. But, you know, it, not, not really when you consider serfdom uh, how many years back. Yeah, you can follow the logic there quite easily. Yeah. The Bolsheviks are very small because the Bolsheviks are kind of hardcore in that they Let's put it this way. There is an argument very early on in the uh, in the existence of Bolshevism as to how involved in the revolution do you need to be to be considered a Bolshevik? And Trotsky would tell you, well, you need to support the, you know, you, you have to believe in our ideals and you have to support the party monetarily, which or, or, you know, with your time, you have to you have to support it. And that would be like most movements would be very grateful for that level of support from a, from an individual. Mm -hmm. uh, Lenin, on the other hand would say, no, you have to be willing to go to the pavement. Like you have to be ready to take revolutionary action. Like you have another job. You're probably not committed enough to be a Bolshevik. You need to be a revolutionary. That needs to be like what you identify as. And how, how does, how, how is, how are revolutionaries supposed to eat? I guess if, through if the monetary do donations of people who aren't good enough to be actually part of the party. I'm not sure. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right, though. That, that is a that is a major criticism of of the Bolsheviks, which is kind of like, well, what do you like? What do you? How much do you want from people? Yeah, you know, like, like what? I, I, I'm sure I don't know much about Lenin, and this is part of why I'm excited for this topic. But mm -hmm. like, I'm sure dude wasn't struggling to eat probably had a, a roof over his house yeah. or his head, right? Yeah, but I mean, and some of that comes from... He's the one out there saying, like, no, you gotta give up everything and revolt. Yeah, and I mean, some of that comes from personal wealth, but some of that is the fact that he's the leader of the Bolsheviks and, and he's essentially drawing a salary off of his work for the party, which is yeah. a very easy way to be a full-time revolutionary. It's um, just... 
it's it, the hypocrisy annoys me. Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent fair. That's a that's a completely uh, reasonable criticism of uh, of Lenin. And I mean, there's a reason that he doesn't have a lot of friends in the wider movement, right? Like, he's just he's a little too much. Mm. And there are a lot of those. There there are a lot of people that felt that description in the history of Russian socialism, going back to you know in in several parties. You you look at somebody like. Uh, Plakhanov or or Bakunin, and it was just kind of like, dude, can you chill a little bit? Like, <laughs> like I'm I'm with you. I would like to, you know, have a Snickers. A little bit, yeah. It's it's that it's that it's that uh, cartoon about, and yet you live in this society. How interesting. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? Like it's it's yeah. it's like calm down, bud. Like you gotta you gotta live. Like you can have your ideals, but we we have we have mouths to feed here. Anyways. Enough bashing revolutionaries on kind of straw man arguments. Those are kind of the three groups that we're looking at here. The cadets, so the, the constitutional democrats, the SRs who are uh, vaguely socialist, but the SRs, like there's a broad idea of what exactly the SRs are angling from. And they, they range from full-blown uh, anarchists to there are SRs who are uh, advocating for sort of a social democrat style system so yeah because they, they mentioned you mentioned that this group sort of viewed capitalism as possibly like a step between where they were and uh socialism and that was the mensheviks oh, those those bad. are still part of the russian social democratic labor party they're they're still labor uh right. rather than sr Got uh, it. the social revolutionaries the srs would see social democrat uh, social democracy as a potential or some of them would see it as a potential uh, finishing point. So the idea of like a, mm. a republic politically, but economically uh, and socially a more socialist view on, you know, having a social safety net, having, you know, health care, having, you know, uh, widening the vote to as many people as possible to, you know, universal suffrage and true universal suffrage. So the vote for women as well uh, to, uh, you know, things like that are are on the table for them, but they're not necessarily looking for an alternative form of government to republicanism. I'm, I'm going to actually step in here because this is a question I've had for a while. Okay. Uh, I've been learning about these topics for years now and I'm just, you know, hobbyist level interest and time, but I'm, I'm a little unclear on what the socialist or communist alternative to a republic would be in this case. Like, how 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 do they see that working? I get the, the social safety nets and even so much as, uh, like, an, an economic system. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure what they have in mind for the, you know, executive branch of the sure. community. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, a lot of... A lot of the trouble when when comparing these things is that sometimes what you get, you know, when you talk about like, uh, you know, Cold War style rhetoric of communism versus democracy is that those aren't actually opposing things. Those are two different no. things. One's an economic system. One on, one is a political system. And exactly, it, it is it is not even remotely radical to suggest that 
uh, even Marx was uh, expecting communism to manifest as a uh, either direct democracy or a, or a representative democracy, depending on which portion of his life he's writing in. You know, if you're if you're talking about a, a communal system, of course, everyone having an equal say in the government would be the ideal setup, right? Why wouldn't it be? And in a very, very large country, a representative democracy is often a much more uh, reasonable way of thinking about having a vote uh, compared to yeah. direct democracy. I mean, even direct democracy is challenging, even with small groups. Yes, and and I mean, even with some of the things that you could pull off today, like technically with the internet today, you could pull off a direct democracy with millions of people, but who has the time to vote on every single thing? No, I know. I'm sorry. I'm being very, very flippant. And you know, computer science background, cryptography brain saying no, 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 no. Oh, I didn't say it was a good idea. I said that like (laughs) you could, you could find ways to do it. Yes. it, it, It could be implemented. It would be broken instantly again. No, but no ignoring the here. bad actors, ignoring the bad actors, it is technically possible now. No, no argument here. But what you end up running up against is like, how much of your day are you willing to to, to spend reading <laughs> up on every single law? Right. Like yeah. that's why you time politician. That's why you have representative democracy. And that's why those those representatives have committees that can advise them on things. Right. Like that is a that is a just a matter of sharing the workload. No one has the time for all of that. So my, my point being here is that there is absolutely nothing, in my opinion, uh, about a republic that is inherently counter to socialism. What you're talking about are. Uh, social ideals and mores, and what you're talking about is details of an economic system, both of which are yeah. governed to some extent by the, the the government. But there's nothing to say that a republic can't have uh, a it can't be governed by a constitution with socialist ideals, and there's nothing to say that a republic can't manage uh, an economy that would be considered socialist. Yeah, does that make sense? It does. It clears up a lot because that sort of was my understanding. And I was just trying to see if like I'd missed something along the way. Right. Well, part of, you know, we're going to answer some of this as we get to the end of this topic, which is why do people kind of assume that communism means dictatorship kind of almost automatically? The answer is in this topic. Propaganda. Excuse me. Well, I mean, yes, yes, but, but also, but also, um, but also historical example. And, uh, those are, those are both, those can both be true. Oh yes. Very much so. I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking we should probably take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about just how quickly things go downhill for Nicholas II in his, uh, in his reign and just how bad things get. So sounds exciting. Be right back. Back on HI 101 here with Phil Downey. Hello. Hello. And we've been talking about, uh, well, no revolutions so far. Uh, that's not sure but lots of other stuff well no we did talk a lot we did talk a lot about the french revolution that is true uh it's not in the title but that's okay it's important stuff nicholas yeah as as we mentioned earlier he's 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 an interesting guy in that he's uh, seems to be like a decent human being for the most part 
especially it's graded on a curve. But that's particularly helpful when you're in a situation like he's in. Well, that's exactly it. That doesn't actually make you a good czar of Russia in any way, shape, or form. That's a, that's a, that's a massive undertaking. He's got a multi-ethnic, huge empire that he needs to run, and he's trying to kind of take it all on on himself. And that's not how that really works. What's more, he's walking into a number of different situations that are just not set up for him. I mean, the thing about Nicholas is that if he had been czar through a very quiet period in Russia's history, he probably would have been fine. <laughs> he, he probably would have been one of those ones that you kind of just skip over as you're going through kind of thing. He would have been a very quiet yeah. leader. And, I, you know, sometimes that's okay. But one thing you'll find when you're looking at revolutions in general in history is that it's never just one thing that happens it's usually you, you need a bad thing to happen and then you need a ruler who does just the worst possible thing about it before people are willing to just like straight up overthrow the government i think i've even used this uh saying on the uh on the podcast before but a bad ruler and a a bad time are almost like a nucleation point for conflict yeah yeah you could say that for sure. Um, and, and that's exactly what we're looking at with Nicholas. I mean, the the turn of the 20th century is this weird time in history in that we're not quite a World War One yet. And the world looks a lot older than you would expect it to for a year that starts in like 19. Mm. There's still an Ottoman Empire. There's still an Austro-Hungarian empire. Not for much longer. No, yeah. no, not for much longer. You're absolutely right, not for much longer. But they don't know that. And, you know, the, the world has kind of settled into this place where they feel like, yes, there was this upheaval with Napoleon and all that, but they sorted it. Mm. And it's seen as this kind of proof of the, uh, the efficacy of traditional or conservative values. And by conservative here, I mean specifically in the classical sense of like monarchical, uh, yeah. believe in a distinct world order that's based on hierarchy, believe in, uh, you know, people knowing their place in things. You know, the, the, the ideas that we would nor normally talk about contemporarily as conservative are very much liberal ideals, not conservative ideals as they would see them in 1900. Yeah. But as, as far as Europe is concerned in, in 1900, it's kind of like, well, conservatism seems to be working out pretty well for everybody. We'll just mm -hmm. occasionally drip out a little bit of social change and everybody's happy. And we is know this true for France as well. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, they're they're certainly further along than most other countries in terms of like the uh, the freedoms that are guaranteed to them under the Constitution. But you know, a lot of other countries have adopted more limited constitutions as well. Um, France is France keeps bouncing back and forth between republics and empires over the 19th century, so mm. they haven't like progressed as far as you might expect necessarily but i, I would sense. say in general they're a little bit further along there is also britain which is in this weird spot in that they haven't really had a, a major revolution since the 17th century and 
instead they they sort of sorted out the idea of the relationship between the monarch and parliament really early on and have just been kind of evolving it to match other offers as it were like when other countries violently revolt for a certain right they just kind of go hmm well, maybe we'll just put that in place. And then we won't have Give any that rules. one out right now and yeah, see no. see if that solves the problem. Yeah, now it's fine. Now no one's going to revolt against this. And it works fairly well in general for uh, at least domestic stability. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in, in, in general, it's a, it's a weird time when you're looking at all of that. It's about to start changing very, very quickly. In a lot of ways, it already has started changing quickly. Again, they're just not quite aware of it. In terms of Russia specifically, there is a push by Nicholas II and his ministers to expand into uh, the very far east in a region of China known as Manchuria. We talked one too. <laughs> yeah, we we talked about Manchuria quite a bit in uh, the Chinese Revolution episodes. Uh, It is a contested area because it's not really held onto all that well by the government of China after the Boxer rebellions. And Mm -hmm. in the upheaval in the aftermath of the Boxer rebellions, basically Russia is looking at that area and they go, well, we have a port on the Pacific. It's called Vladivostok. But Vladivostok freezes over in the winter and you can really only get ships out of it in the summer, which isn't that useful as like a naval base. We would like a warm water naval base, please. Mm -hmm. They're in a weird spot in the West, which is that, you know, to get ships out to the Atlantic, they have to basically sail them south through the Black Sea through Ottoman territory, out through the Mediterranean and into the Atlantic. There are also ports in Finland, right? Like on the North yeah. Sea kind of thing. But again, cold water ports. That means that you can't use them year round necessarily. So if Russia can have access to a warm water port on the Pacific, it's going to significantly help them defend their territory, uh, navally speaking, because it's 1900 and the, the Navy is how you project power globally. Look at Britain. So they have their eye on a port known as Port Arthur, which is in Manchuria. And basically they go, well, things are so bad in China right now. We could just start laying railway through China to that port. And then once it's connected up, say that we've built the stuff and that kind of makes it ours. (laughs) And that's sort of the plan there. The big problem there, though, isn't China, which, again, is in so much turmoil that there's not a whole lot they're going to do about it. Can I guess? Mm-hmm. Is it Japan? Sure is. They also have their eye on Manchuria. So long story short, Japan is upset about the whole Port Arthur thing. You know, there's some short negotiations, but in 1904, uh, the Russo-Japanese War starts with a surprise attack on the Russian fleet at Port Arthur by the Japanese Navy. Um, a few mm-hmm. ships are are damaged and sunk but more of an issue is that the japanese navy is is holed up right outside the port and the fleet is essentially unable to sail out of port arthur they're trapped now there is also some land conflict in the russo-japanese war they basically land in korea and start uh, the japanese land in korea and start working their way up uh towards russian territory and there is you know the there are army battles, but it is essentially, in a lot of ways, a naval conflict. And with their fleet 
stuck in port, there's not a whole lot that the Russians can do about it. What they come up with as an alternative is what's known as the Second Pacific Fleet. And it's a bit of an ironic name in that it sails out of the North Sea. <laughs> it sails all the way... <laughs> It sails all the way uh, through the North Sea past Britain, where there's a minor, just a just a minor incident uh, where they kind of think that some British fishing vessels might be Japanese ships. For some reason, there was rumors going around. It's known as the Dogger Bank incident. Uh, anyways, they managed to smooth that over after spooking some fishermen pretty badly. <laughs> um, they sail all the way down. Uh, the coast of Europe, they sail all the way down the coast of Africa around the Cape up through the Indian Ocean. It oh, takes, this is such a long journey. <laughs> it takes months. It takes, I, I think it's eight months or something like that. So something that you should know about ships in general is that uh, the longer that you sail, uh, the more stuff collects on the hulls of ships, barnacles and yes. whatnot, right? And this has a like an actual tangible effect on the speed and handling of your ships. Yeah, because you're just, I don't know if drag is a concept in boating. What the heck is the term you're sailing? Sailing. Um, but <laughs> Boating. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I assume that's what it, what happens. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's it's drag. Um, it You know, the, the, the Russian ships, by the time they get to the Pacific, are not in great shape. And the other thing to know is that their fleet is kind of old, like pretty mm. old. Fleets aren't really the thing that you, the kind of thing that you update like every five years, right? Like they're expensive to make. Yeah. Meanwhile, in Japan, they've spent the last 30, 40 years since the, uh, since the Meiji Restoration very deliberately modernizing. And a big part of that is building a modern navy, which they've yeah. sourced from all the best shipmakers in the world. They have a very new, very good navy. And when the Russian fleet finally gets to Japan in kind of terrible shape and without really any surprise whatsoever, there is a decisive battle it's called the battle of tsushima where the the japanese navy beats the russian navy so badly that it's taught in textbooks to this day um wow they do something called crossing the t i'm not sure if you're familiar with that. oh yes have yep. i told you about this before bad 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 tactic don't want to get caught there you, you don't want to have your t crossed no, you don't. You definitely want to cross someone's T, but... Yeah, so so essentially what happens is that um, the, the Japanese ships were able to sail across the bow of the, uh, the uh, Russian ships, which means that every single one of the guns pointing off the side of the Japanese battleships was able to fire directly at the Russian ones, while the Russian ships had no guns trained on the Japanese ships whatsoever, and it was absolutely devastating literally the best position you can put one of your boats in yeah it's the it, it's the it's the battle of Cannae of naval movements you know like it's just like yeah. it never happens it never happens but it's so good when it does so mm -hmm. the the russo-japanese war is an absolute embarrassment for uh, Russia for a number of reasons. One is that they're going to lose control of that warm water port that they wanted. Another is that they were soundly defeated in war and with a with a very racist 
twist to it, this is the first time in the modern period that a European power has been defeated by a non-European power, and that's considered like especially embarrassing for the Russians on the world stage. Just is what it is. So racism on a curve. Yeah, pretty much. Um, the the level of civil unrest that this encourages, just through the loss of of uh, confidence in the czar, is is quite incredible. It starts with general strike action, actually, that's taken up. It, it's a very unac- uh, uh, It's a very um, unpopular war, and. This is a time period where workers are just sort of barely starting to grasp the the collective power that they have. There's a there's a general strike, fifty percent plus of the workforce in uh, urban Russia stops working, protesting for a cessation of of fighting and beginning to demand a democratic republic, which for Nicholas is like just unthinkable, right? Like, what are they doing, like? He's got this picture in his head of this very old style of relationship with people, which is that like, well, maybe they're mad at like, maybe they're mad at the people running the city, but I'm their czar and they love me. Yeah. He doesn't really get it. Uh, There's also a whole bunch of uprisings from uh, naval officers specifically um, looking again for, yeah, looking again for, for an end to the, uh, uh, to the conflict uh, in in specifically the uh, port city of Sevastopol, uh, and that's crushed are they just, violently. Are they just tired of getting their butts kicked, or they yeah. just want to go home? Or yeah, essentially, and they're they're kind of going like, "Why are we fighting this war? This is dumb." What what is the impetus like other than you want to have access to the Pacific because maybe you need to be in the Pacific? Well, I mean, like, are they they were attacked by Japan? It's technically a defensive war, even though they're defending a port that didn't quite belong to them. Your your other option <laughs> is to say, <laughs> your other option Were is to sue for peace. Japan? Your other option is to sue yeah. for peace, and and that's even more embarrassing, right? I actually jumped ahead on the uh, on the general strike action. I apologize for that. Um, people aren't on strike just How yet. How dare people aren't on strike just yet? No, w- what happens is that in January of 1905, this is this is before the the war is over yet. A group of workers uh, marches to the Winter Palace, which is the the Tsar's official residence, led by uh, an Orthodox priest, uh, Father Gapon, who, and and this group is very like intentionally like apolitical. They're very like intentionally uh, nonviolent. There's a long tradition in Russia of presenting position, uh, petitions to the czar. And this goes back to that same like uh, paternalistic re- relationship mm-hmm. that we talked about, right? Like this idea of like, if the czar hears our pleas, he'll be moved to do something about it. And there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing radical about pre- presenting a petition. It is a, a long-standing tradition. There are over 50,000 workers marching with Father Gapon to the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. They're looking for an end of the war. They're looking for some very specific, like workers' rights type issues, improved wages, working conditions, you know, uh, work safety. They're looking for eight-hour days. A lot of workers at this point in time were working 11, 12-hour days, sometimes longer. Mm. Children were allowed to have Sundays off. Uh-huh. So, you know, just you know, completely unreasonable demands on their part. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm... I'm- I'm gonna I'm gonna interject a question here. Yeah, it it seems like not that long ago the people 
grouping up and making requests of of the ruling uh, party mm-hmm. just would have been an absurd idea. Yeah, like yeah. how I know I, I know like we had the the, the French Revolution, but like it's, I don't even know this is a question so much just a comment of like wow, a lot changed real quick. Yeah, I mean I think there are you know countless examples of you know armed revolts and things like that in terms of like the the idea of like a peaceful petition that that is a fairly new thing yes but in in russia it's a thing that had been around since like the 16th century like there was a tradition of it there so sure but like was it as massive as this group like you're you're saying there yeah that's what i mean is that like a group of people that large just getting together and more or less politely making a demand. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I think a lot of that has to do with the uh, urbanization that comes with the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, right? that makes like, a lot of sense. Yeah. You don't get that many people, uh, that many like-minded people in the same space very easily. Even in cities, there is such a disparate um, experience and and uh, uh, need um, for, mm-hmm. for, for different issues that you're unlikely to get that many people who are that concerned about a single thing uh not that it never happened but yeah you're you're right it is harder i I think that really is an industrialized phenomenon so does a violence happen how did you know (laughs) oh i mm, just a lucky guess you could just you could just feel it coming huh the 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 czar actually wasn't at the winter palace which again isn't actually a problem for this process normally but he hears about this protest and very very callously basically says like Mm, I don't want to hear about it. Like, that's too many people. They're supposed to be at work. Make them go back to work. Tell them to go away. And these orders are interpreted. Uh, depending on the <laughs> depending on the story, they're very explicit or they're not. You know, this take is care of it, please. <laughs> essentially, and and you know, in the aftermath of this, Nicholas will just he, he will he will mourn what happens here. He is so very sorry about of all course. this. But what ends oh, up happening yeah, is that. Ten thousand troops are brought in to Saint Petersburg with orders to prevent the marchers from actually physically reaching the palace. Usually, in tellings of this, this like happens on the palace steps, which is not true. Uh, but at some point, nobody quite knows when or how or who or whatever. Uh, yeah, the the soldiers start shooting. This is known as Bloody Sunday. Anywhere between a wow. hundred and four thousand people are killed by the soldiers. Uh, that's a big range yeah I, I the the number I saw most commonly was probably around a thousand people but in anything like this the the numbers are always going to fluctuate right it's really yeah. really difficult to tell because you also get you know when you when you're in a, a large crowd like that it's kind of like okay well how do we count somebody that was you know knocked over and trampled because people are running away from gunshots yeah. right like it, 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 stuff like that becomes like it's it's not just a disparity of numbers issue. It's also a clarity issue. Um, there's always that makes sense. differences there. But in any case, lots of people are killed. Lots of people are killed. And this almost single-handedly shatters the illusion of people's like relationship with the czar. Because they were doing everything mm. right. They were presenting the petition the way that they were supposed to. And he just callously had people open fire. And that's not how it's supposed to work. This is yeah, that like of the of the varying scale of reactions you could have got, 
your expectation was on the almost exact opposite side mm-hmm. of the the reaction you actually received. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is this is where that general strike that I was talking about before comes in with 50% plus of the workforce uh, taking up strike action in protest. And they're no longer just protesting the end of the war. They're, decla- they're demanding a democratic republic. They're demanding that the the entire government be changed and that the czar's autocratic powers be lost it is it is not a small thing (laughs) something that's really interesting comes up at this point in time which is that the workers don't just riot they begin forming these councils known as uh soviets these Ah. are very um they're very labor-based they're very collaborative they are they will be held up as examples of uh communist action later it is more of an organizing effort at this point in time than it is necessarily a an explicitly political effort but these soviets begin directing protest and strike actions within these cities now these actions are all violently suppressed by the Russian military. Like this is not, this is not successful in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. However, despite all the people that are killed, which are in the thousands, it does get to a point in October of 1905 where there are enough advisors managed to convince Nicholas that he needs to do this, that he finally agrees to creating uh, what's known as the Duma. The Duma is a general assembly uh, there are there there have been Dumas in the past, but they're the kind of thing that are in place for a couple of months and then are dissolved again. The October Manifesto, which is the document that creates this, promises the creation of a national Duma and a say by the citizens of Russia in the workings of government. It's a little bit vague. They can't pin him down to promising a constitution, but it's the closest that anybody's gotten to a concession out of a czar in a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And it does exactly what it's designed to do, which is it quells the rebellion, specifically because people who uh, would identify as cadets, people who would identify as moderate SRs, are all satisfied by this action because they see it as a step towards Republican change in the government, right? Like it looks like it's moving towards a constitutional democracy. And even the Mensheviks to some extent are seeing this as a step towards capitalism, which again, furthers their own goals. The only people who are completely unhappy with all of this are the Bolsheviks who see it as completely insufficient, but they don't have the volume anymore to do anything about it. Yeah. Following these 1905 revolutions, the military will crack down on all of these political groups. There's a massive chill on freedom of speech. There's a massive chill on freedom of uh, assembly. A lot of people we would normally talk about in this story are uh, run out of Russia entirely, including Lenin. He'll end up in Switzerland uh, and he'll basically write and direct from there, but he won't be inside Russia. Likewise, the SRs are not like they haven't been a a real political party or anything like that. They've been uh, harassed by the uh, by the police. Um, There's there's a whole like secret police system that's set up to like root out all of these revolutionaries, things like that. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> just <clears throat> the uh, sorry, frogman. <clears throat> the I I don't know if irony irony is the right word. Maybe juxtaposition of this concession for some form of republic, mm-hmm. followed by just like what sounds like pretty extreme suppression and oppression of the of dissidents is interesting mm-hmm. at best and mm-hmm. uncomfortable and bad at yeah. worst. Yeah, I think that's completely fair to say. Again, we have a buffoon running things here. Um, <laughs> and, and what's more, he's a buffoon who believes that he's been ordained by God to do exactly what he's doing and therefore is completely right in everything that he does even even making even appointing this duma is like pulling teeth with him right there is a constitution that's put in in 1906 but it turns out that it's got absolutely no teeth whatsoever same as same with the duma Mm. it doesn't actually have any legislative power uh essentially what it does is it allows people to present things in a slightly more ordered way to the the czar to either sign off on or not it's got no real legislative power on its own and you know looking back on all of the other things we talked about in the first half of you know talking about the 19th century there is a there's an alternate world here where we talk about nicholas ii as somebody who you know well was forced into some uh, was forced into some liberal concessions and then, you know, his successor, uh, ended up being more reform minded and tried some stuff. And then his successor was more reactionary and ended up going, you know, and it would have just continued on, but that's not the case because in 1914, you know, a single Serbian nationalist sets off this chain reaction that throws an entire world into chaos with world war one. Russia is very much involved. In fact, they would have been happy to likely sit out the conflict. Russia was very much in a rebuilding phase of their military at that point in time. And in comparative power to some of their rivals, say like France or Britain, they were actually making significant strides. The failure at the Russo-Japanese War had really convinced them that they needed to uh, turn some things around. Now, I know it sounds like I'm constantly saying Russia is like, well, you know, they were finally convinced of the fact that they had to improve. And it's true. They do seem a little bit short lived on some of these improvements or reforms. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the military was one of the few places where Nicholas was, at least up until this point in time, willing to defer to generals who uh, had actually learned a thing or two and and were making uh, concrete improvements. For now. <laughs> Okie doke. However, when World War I breaks out, it is Serbia that's at the, the, the heart of the beginning of it, right? And Serbia, while not directly part of the Russian Empire, is kind of considered like a client state. There is a sort of unwritten relationship between the Tsar and other Slavic nations in Eastern Europe. This idea that like, well... It's kind of like Russia's like their big brother. And if they're getting pushed around on the on the playground, he's going to help them fight the bully. Yeah, the whole Slavic identity thing has not gone anywhere in the mm-hmm. in the the six years since we recorded the first episode and the many years since the time uh, in between history. Yeah. Yeah. And keep in mind that, you know, beginning of World War One is like a height of nationalism in terms of like. Uh, the way that it plays into alliance making, right? And so it's kind of seen as though 
for Russia to not step in and support Serbia would be a blow to its international reputation because mm. it would be an admission of weakness, essentially. So Russia steps up and declares war on, uh, well, first on Austria-Hungary, but they also move to uh, they they also move their troops to the German border, very 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 close to the German border, and it's one mm-hmm. of the factors that convinces Germany to go ahead and preemptively attack France through uh, Belgium at the beginning of World War One. They're hoping to take over France before they have to t- tackle Russia, and they're convinced that Russia is going to attack at any time. So makes sense. Russia's all tied up in that whole mess. They have a huge army at this point. And yes, it is modernizing. But what they don't have worked out yet is good logistics, like good supply lines and good railroads. They've been building tons of railroads, but not enough to support an army of the size of the Russian army in World War I. The first battle that they fight, there are 30,000 Russian casualties. That means killed or wounded. And 90,000 Russians are captured. That's Those are big numbers. They're going to win some battles in this war, but they're going to lose more than they win. What's the size of their army? Oh, they, I don't know off the, top of my, uh, off the top of my head. They'd be able to field a couple of million at, at this point in time, though. Okay. That's still a lot. The numbers, the numbers on armies in World War I are... There are a lot of places where they haven't really been matched again, especially because battles would go on for for so long, right? Like, if you if you look at the overall casualties on something like uh, you know the Somme or something like that, uh, it's it's hundreds of thousands, and it's like, what? How how is that possible? But they were literally just throwing infantry at the problem, and and people were getting killed and wounded constantly. It's a it's a an existentially horrifying war. Yeah. You kind of can't overstate it. And that's going to be a big problem for uh, all of the nations of Europe. And and to some extent is going to play into what we talk about with, with fascism. But for, for Russia, the way that that plays out is before everybody else is exhausted, Russia is already exhausted by 1915. Soldiers are being sent to the front weaponless and being told to just do your best to find a gun that's how is that not met with like mass defection i mean defectors are shot with what guns <laughs> fair fair point no no by by the officers that do have guns but yeah, yeah no, I, I i gotcha i gotcha that's terrible yeah yeah i mean we gotta make jokes we've talked about this before right sure you you laugh to keep from crying but yeah that's horrific nicholas in his uh benevolent wisdom (laughs) decides that the solution to all of these war problems is that well he's the autocrat this is his responsibility and he decides to take personal command of the russian army oh good you know what he's not good at? His commanding army. Everything. Well, uh, yeah, but. fair. Um, what's more, he ends up leaving uh, his wife, the Tsarina Alexandra, in charge of domestic affairs while he's away. Alexandra, I, feel, I feel a name coming on. Yeah, we're not going to spend long on him. But there's there's two problems uh, in terms of the, the Russian people with Alexandra being left in charge. One is the fact that she was born in Germany. 
Oh. So maybe she's a spy. Who knows? I mean, there's nothing to indicate that she was actually spying. She was a very loyal uh, Zarina to, to Russia after her marriage to Nicholas. There's, there's zero to suggest that. But, I mean, when you're doing that poorly in war, rumors start spreading. And then, yeah, the second is what you were pointing to, which is her... her uh, the, the, the strange level of influence that uh, the, the monk Grigory Rasputin had over her. Uh, Rasputin was uh, purportedly the only one that was able to cure their son, Alexei, of uh, his, um, what's it called, uh, hemophilia. I, I, this is clear conspiracy theory joke nonsense, but yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that, that uh, Rasputin poisoned the kid so that he could come in with the cure. <laughs> Be the hero. No, but sure. <laughs> Calling it. No, Calling it. That's that's absolutely not what happened. No, hemophilia ran in the family. Okay. All, all of Victoria's descendants were prone to it. Um, it was fairly common in, in, in a number of uh, in a number of people in in uh, well, and because Victoria's children were married to literally every house in in Europe, uh, it was a pretty common problem throughout. So anyways, uh, we're not going to spend time on the whole Gregory Rasputin thing. It's, it's fun to talk about, but really not. Uh, the, the only relevant thing here is that people did not trust Rasputin because he was an untrustworthy person. And they were concerned that essentially he was shadow running the entire government through his uh, influence over Alexandra, which, you know, legitimate concern, I suppose. But... Uh, Really, all of this is concern over the war boiling over into other aspects. Again, if Rasputin had been part of the the court during peacetime, it would have been a weird footnote in history and not the whole uh, myth that the man's been elevated to. Yeah, uh, as we know, he was assassinated at the end of 1916 in a hilarious series of mishaps that are almost certainly overstated. Uh, he's actually ass- assassinated by liberal leaning uh, nobles. They're hoping that once he's gone, uh, Alexandra will kind of come to her senses and start you know, working to modernize the court. Why they thought that would work, I do not know, but here we are. The Ottoman Empire also managed to cut off trade routes through the Mediterranean by 1916. So on top of everything else that's going on, they're now uh, Russia is now essentially cut off from being supplied by its allies overseas. It's running out of money to... Uh, cover war expenses so the government just starts printing more money and we all know how well that always goes Mm -hmm. rampant inflation Uh, this triggers an agricultural uh, crisis because all of a sudden the grain that farmers had been growing to feed the armies is worth uh, I think it was worth like a quarter of what it used to be worth and a lot of them just ended up eating their grain instead of selling it to the government uh, or reverting completely to subsistence farming, which means that now the army is also starving, as well as the people. Those dominoes, they keep falling. February of 1917. International Women's Day. It's actually not the, the same day as it you know, is traditionally now, March 8th. It was, it was a little earlier in February, but they were observing International Women's Day. There's a demonstration by female workers. Most uh, able-bodied men have been sent to the front by now. A lot of the action that's being taken in 1917 is by women, uh, mostly because they have, well, there's there's a number of reasons. They've been newly thrust into the workforce to cover for uh, men who've been sent away to fight, but also, you know, they have family that's at the front, and there's a general 
uh, sense that the fighting is so senseless that it is, you know, that they, they feel a responsibility to protest to the government on their husband's behalf, because as we talked about, dissent in the army is not well tolerated. Um, yeah, yeah. So they and feel their, that, their families are being pushed into a literal meat grinder, it seems. Yeah. So so these women feel that they might have more of a voice than their their husbands might. And they feel a responsibility to advocate for them. This this, uh, this demonstration, International Women's Day, is almost entirely anti-war. That is the the, the purpose of the demonstration. But there are also mm-hmm. workers' rights aspects to it. There are also famine aspects to it. It gets big fast. Uh, again, we're talking like 50,000 people marching in St. Petersburg. And again, troops are ordered to suppress the demonstration. Except this time, the troops don't suppress anything. The troops turn around and begin marching with the women. And oh. the government goes, ah, Uh-oh. this isn't good. Uh, there are there are something like 180 <laughs> There's something like 180,000 troops in uh, St. Petersburg, but only like 30,000 of them maybe are able-bodied enough to actually be reliable in any sense. No, 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 it wasn't 30. Sorry, it was it was even less than that. It was like 12 or something like that. Um, it's a very low number. And it was one of those things where it's kind of like, but I want what they want. Why would I why would I stop them? You know, these these men don't want to fight in the war. They're done with it. They're they're done much sooner than anybody else is in World War One, and like all the powers are going to get there eventually. But Russia had such a bad time of it that they were they were out of it so soon. The uh, yeah, so the troops revolt uh, on on March 11th when they're when they're ordered to uh, to suppress these demonstrations. They've been going on for a couple of weeks at this point, and it got so bad in the city of Saint Petersburg that March 14th, three days later, the Tsar actually returns from the front. And when he gets there, he's met by delegates from both the government and the military. So military commanders, nobles, uh, advisors, and they basically confront him when he gets off the the train and go, they want you to abdicate and we think you should. I'm sure he handles that with grace and poise. I mean, he was not happy about it, but... all things considered, yeah, relatively gracefully, he he stepped down. He also abdicated on his son's behalf. <laughs> the first, the first smart move the man's made in a while. Potentially, yeah. I mean, all of the concessions that he asks for when he's when he's uh, stepping down are for the safety of his family. Hmm. I I think once the military turned away, I think even Nicholas realized what was happening here and what his prospects looked like. Yeah, not not quite willing to die on that hill. Not quite. So the reason he he abdicates for his son as well is because he's very, very young and because he is sick and he doesn't think that he doesn't think the mob will be kind to them to to him. Sorry. And so he he goes ahead and abdicates on his behalf and basically says, well, my my brother, Michael, is available. (laughs) And uh, Michael Romanov basically says, oh, no. No, no, no. I'm not becoming czar. That's not happening. Yeah, pass. Pass. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, but no thanks. And now all of a sudden there's no Romanovs to take up the throne. I mean, there's, you know, there's some there's some remote branches or whatever, but like essentially no Russia's one serious about that. Well, essentially Russia's czarless. They they're monarchless. They they have they they have no ruler. And it's kind of like, whoa. 
Uh... Now what? Because here's the thing. There's all these groups that have talked about change, right? Like this is especially bad in Russia in the uh, both the SR and in the labor, labor movement where they're kind of talking about this moment of revol- uh, revolution in the theoretical and like, you know, wouldn't it be great kind of thing? And here's how we would do it if kind of thing. But all of a sudden there's a power vacuum and it's like, now's the time. Hang on. What do we do with this? And I mean, you know, for the Bolsheviks, Lenin's not even in the country for the SRs. It's like, well, I don't actually know what we want Russia to look like. Like there's no consensus on that. You know, like the, the only, so, so two things happen. One is that the Duma, which had been, you know, created in 1905, kind of, which had just been uh, prorogued a day or two before, something like that, basically went, well, I guess we better convene an emergency session and uh, (laughs) figure out the continuity of power in the Russian government, because that's the closest thing that they had to continuity of power. While that is happening, the uh, Soviet that had been... Uh, dispersed at the end of 1905, workers began organizing with that exact same model in St. Petersburg, but also in Moscow and also in Kiev and other major cities in the Russian Empire. And they went, well, last time there was a revolution, we ran things. Why not this time? And so when you get to the end of the February Revolution, you have no czar and you have what's known as dual power, which is that the Duma and the Soviets looked at each other and went, I guess we figure this out together? Question mark. Mm. And this is like a really unstable arrangement. But yeah, it seems tenuous at best. The way it shakes out is that in the Duma, there are representatives from the cadets, from the SRs, from the Mensheviks, specifically from the labor movement, all of whom are going well. This is our opportunity to influence the future direction of Russia in the way that we want. So for the cadets, they're just looking for a very like straight up liberal style constitutional democracy for the SRs, various uh, versions of peasant power. Uh, and, you know, however that ends up looking in their particular flavor of it, the Mensheviks are going, well, we would like to set up, I guess, a capitalist democracy because that's what we need before we can create enough workers to garner class consciousness and have a proletarian uprising. The only ones, again, that aren't joining in are the Bolsheviks. Why? Like, I don't know enough about Marxist-Leninists to to know, to get that. Because they see collaboration with the Duma as inherently compromising and, like, to their values. In fact... Lenin, uh, you know, upon hearing of the of the February revolutions, decides to return to Russia. And it's this interesting thing because he's in Switzerland and he needs to travel through enemy Germany to get to uh, Russia. And what ends up happening is he 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 negotiates a sealed like uh, armored train car with the Russian or the German government to take him in. And the Germans mainly agree to it because the Bolsheviks are ardently anti-war. They want to end the war and they figure, well, if they get Bolshevik support, maybe we can kind of get Russia out of all of this question mark. Yeah. They're also dumping tons of money into the Bolshevik uh, party mechanism. There's a lot of like, for that. Yeah. Same reason. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of like conspiracy theories around that at the, at this point in time, 
you know, mainly in terms of like the the integrity of the Bolsheviks. And I think this is one of those situations where it's just it's just interests aligning, not, you know, the Bolsheviks aren't like a German creation or something like that, you know? Yeah, it's a it's an it's it's a move of opportunity. So anyways, on his journey, Lenin is writing something known as the April Theses. And in the April Theses, he's outlining exactly what you just asked, which is why collaborating with the Duma is a bad thing. Essentially, what he says is that, you know, the short version is essentially that the Soviets are the only legitimate form of government because they are organized and uh, led by the workers remembering that the Bolsheviks are fairly strictly adherent to a Marxist model of um, progression of the revolution. So they believe that it doesn't matter how many workers there are or how many peasants there are. It's the workers that should be leading the way forward because it's only with worker-led revolution that you can have true communism. Hmm. Lenin, however, is specifically departing from Marx in that you know, you could very easily argue that the Mensheviks are the ones who are the more orthodox Marxists in this situation, because Marx would say that you can't force the revolution necessarily. It needs to be developed through the emergent class consciousness of the working working class. Yeah, because earlier uh, in one of the, the earlier discussions, we, we mentioned that Marx sort of built his framework on the idea of capitalism first. That's right. And transitioning out of it, right? Which and is like that's not solidly in place in Russia yet. Yeah, which is which is why Russia is such a poor fit for it. Lenin believed that there is a space in Marxism for what's known as vanguard theory, which is that it would be possible to uh, deliberately incite revolution, a revolution led by uh, intellectuals that through revolution, you could basically jumpstart the class consciousness of workers. This is not something that Marx would have approved of necessarily, but that sounds like a hierarchy, which is bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a major criticism of, of Lenin here. Right. And, and what Lenin would tell you, and, and he would point to a, a, Marx would talk about the idea that there would have to be some imposition of hierarchy early on in uh, the implementation of communism because yeah, tr- it's transitionally. Yeah, it, transitionally. And Lenin is basically saying, well, I'm, that's exactly what I'm talking about is this transitional uh, uh, leadership. That's not, that's not inherently anti-communist. But I think there is also another way of looking at Lenin which is to say that, oh, and, and the Bolsheviks in general, which is to say that, they, man, they seem kind of impatient. They really want this thing to go. And I think they're looking at the February Revolution as uh, an opportunity. And while other Marxists at the time are saying, like, well, that's the next step in the, in the historical progression. Everything seems to be making sense. Bolsheviks are looking at it and going, well, we can, we can jump an entire step. This is great. How much of that, like, uh, this is pure speculation, but like, how much of that comes down to like ego or just trying to push their point real hard, real fast? Like what in hindsight, we can look at this and say, like, if communism were viable, obviously this was not the way to approach it. Mm. And like, 
it's clear why, because, you know, Russia just wasn't in the state for communism to work the way Marx had lined it out. Mm -hmm. So why, why did they, why did they rush it? Were they just wrong? Were they, was it a power grab? Like, I, what, what drove the impatient, impatientness? That's patience. I think impatience works. I, I don't feel qualified to answer that for you. I, I really don't. It's, it's uh, first of all, like really, really speculative. It's really hard to say. Yeah. Um, sure. But, you know, it's, it's also one of those things where, you know, Lenin ends up founding uh, the Soviet Union, which at least in, in, in name is a fairly long lasting communist government. And, uh, you know, I, I suppose it could also be argued that Marx was wrong, that there was only one path to it, and that uh, Lenin was the one that recognized that revolutionary uh, potential lay in places other than a large working class. And that in, you know, recognizing that capitalism uh, was, you know, inherently you know, in a Marxist framework that capitalism was inherently exploitative of worker of workers, it would be like morally wrong to uh, deliberately put that in place when you felt that there was an opportunity to liberate that class of people sooner. I'm on the other much, hand, I'm very much playing devil's <laughs> advocate here. And, and yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm putting a lot of words in people's mouths. Um, and yeah. what's more, so like, it's, it gets speculative. and what's more, while Lenin wrote a lot of things like the things that I am saying right now, then you can also get into questions of like, well, how much did he actually believe that? And how much was he saying it to, uh, rationalize what he'd done? Which yeah. I don't know, you know, you don't, you can't really see in, in, inside people's hearts and minds on stuff like this, right? Um, yeah, you sort of have to take both options as possibility and just live with that. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I would say so. I, I mean, I, I would say that at their core, the Bolsheviks in general and Lenin in particular refused to compromise because they they were so strong in their convictions that they believed that to compromise would be to be morally wrong. And, mm. you know, there is, there is, I suppose, something to a strength of conviction, conviction when it comes to things like this. It doesn't necessarily and make I'm sure a good no, thing. I'm sure no morally wrong actions occur because well, of this. That, that's, right? the other, that's the other side of it too, right? Like, <laughs> I, I agree with you. But in terms of like trying to explain his motivation... Yeah, of course. That of course. that would be that would be the thing that I would point to, not not the yeah. not the consequences of all of this. But if we're looking for specifically what motivates him, uh, you know, uh, he, he Lenin had such a clear vision of what he saw as the right path for Russia that when people were talking about you know ah just give a little, everything that he saw as giving to other factions he saw as. Uh, a net negative every single time. Yeah. And he wasn't willing to compromise that vision. And again, th this speaks only to motivation, not to, not to results. The provisional government that goes into place with this dual power system is fraught from the beginning because first of all, they decide to continue the war mostly because of their obligations to their allies, right? To France, to Britain. But that's going to be a problem for everyone who revolted for specifically anti-war reasons. Because keep in mind, everyone marching has slightly different motivations too. You might not hate the czar. You might just want the war to be over. 
And when it results in the overthrow of the czar, that might be extremely dissatisfying for you, especially if you didn't actually have a problem with the with the power structure as it was. You just saw him as maybe not living up to his obligations under that power structure. Right now you have no czar and still a war and you're like, oh, for two. Mm-hmm. You also have the government being undermined at every turn, either by the Bolsheviks externally or by the various parties that are involved in the Duma internally or or sometimes from the, the Soviets as well, because there's like a lot of different power structures to try and navigate in terms of like just figuring basic legislation stuff out. There is also a power of or there is also a problem of legitimacy in specifically the Duma, which is that those people have not been elected. It's just a recently prorogued parliament that come back together and say, well, I think we need to figure things out. And this is not the time for an election. We're in the middle of a war and a coup. So we got to figure that out, which means that nobody voted for them. Yeah. Sounds like a powder keg. (laughs) Well, yeah, absolutely. As dissatisfaction grows with the provisional government and all the problems that they're failing to fix, which I mean, to be fair to the provisional government, yeah, you're still in the war. It's kind of hard to just extract yourself from one of the largest conflicts in human history. Yeah, the famine still existed. How do you solve a famine overnight when it's based in problems of your supply chains being uh, broken off by an enemy combatant and straight up no crops being planted the last couple of years? That is not an easy thing to make go away. And people are getting dissatisfied in the matter of like months, not years. This, This government will not last long. The Bolsheviks start looking like a really good alternative because the Bolsheviks are out there talking about how uh, the Soviets should be the only legitimate version of power, which within the cities sounds really good, right? To all the workers. They're also, they've also got a, a slogan that just says peace, land, and bread, which, hey, for Russia in 1917. Sounds real appetizing. Absolutely, yeah. There are peasants who are still upset about the way that things worked out under the the emancipation, the way that land was allotted. Lenin is saying, yeah, that's going to be your land. Don't worry about it. He's not necessarily pushing all the finer points of like Marxist theory because he knows that it's mm-hmm. not necessarily going to play well with all these people. He's nece- he's instead just setting him himself up as like anti-government alternative. In June of 1917, the first offensive taken up under the provisional government fails just catastrophically once again. And there's a violent protest by the military in early July. It's it's uh, it could have been a coup. In fact, it was being uh, raised under the Bolshevik banner. However, it wasn't actually organized by the Bolsheviks. It was a spontaneous thing in response to this military loss. This is known as the July days. And what's really interesting about it is that the Bolsheviks are also unprepared for violent revolts, and they end up denouncing this movement because they're just not ready to step in and take power. They've been needling the government this entire time, but they're not actually prepared to do anything about it, practically speaking. It's such a frustrating position that often happens in politics, and it bothers me to this day. And it still happens to this day. Oh, for sure. Lenin is actually forced to flee again to Finland this time to avoid arrest because after this, because uh, the the provisional government attempts to tie this uh, attempted coup to the Bolshevik party, which is understandable since they were basically marching under Bolshevik Bolshevik banners when they tried overthrowing the government. Um, Yeah. There are other Bolshevik leaders, including Trotsky, who are arrested at this point in time. 
that being said, their popularity keeps growing. Remember how exclusive Bolshevik uh, membership was back in the early 1900s? We talked about the level of commitment that Lenin was expecting. That's, yeah. that's been relaxed to some extent uh, because of the revolutions, but it's still like relatively commitment heavy. There were about 24,000 Bolsheviks uh, registered like at the beginning, like at the February revolution kind of thing. By the mm-hmm. summer of 1917, you're looking at 200,000 people who identify as Bolshevik. Yikes. It's a big jump. Yeah. The leader, the leader of the uh, provisional government, uh, it's a guy named Alexander Kerensky. He's uh, a member of the SR party. He's a lawyer. And he's just trying to make this all work. Like, I, I kind of feel bad yeah, for the he's guy. Put, he's putting out fires. Yeah. He is trying to balance all of this stuff, but it's it's just not going well. And it's going poorly enough that, like, even information traveling out of the capital starts degrading in quality to the point that mm. there is a military leader. Uh, he's actually the supreme commander of all the Russian forces on the Eastern Front, uh, a General Kornilov. Uh, gets the message that apparently the, the 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 capital, which is now Petrograd, by the way, instead of St. Petersburg since the revolution, he, he gets information that Petrograd is under siege by uh, extremists, I think is the word that gets used, and uh, sends troops back to the capital to try and suppress these riots. Now, there aren't actually any riots. This is a veiled attempt at a coup of the provisional government by the military. Mm. Kerensky is unable to really do anything about it with his own power because it's his own military that's turning against him. Yeah. But in February, at the same time that these uh, Soviets were set up, a new opposing force starts springing up among the working class, which is known as the Red Army. This is a unstructured, informal paramilitary force that is explicitly sworn to the soviets sounds very militia like oh yeah absolutely absolutely kerensky is forced to ask the soviets for help defending the capital from russia's own army and he's they're successful at doing so they uh especially thanks to the bolsheviks who have enough people placed in like supporters placed in positions like running the railways, you know, like signal operators, things like that, that they're able to just like slow, like literally slow down the progress of the Russian army back to the capital long enough to get organized while the red army who's devoted to the the Bolsheviks manages to set up like a defense that's good enough to hold back professional soldiers who, you know, to be fair, are are not that interested in attacking the capital, to be honest with you. Um, But still it is, it is a, competently run defense of the the capital. So when you say that these troops are being sent from the Eastern Front, are we talking the east of Russia? Sorry, uh, the Eastern Front refers to the front between Russia and Germany, as opposed to the Western figured, Front between Germany I wasn't and France. Sure. No, 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 that's yeah. okay. It, it's worth clarifying. I, I don't always think of, of how that kind of thing might come off. So no, it's, it's good to say as much. Yeah, well, I mean, that's being... probably also going to have some impact, right? No, no, no. It's not that many troops are getting split. No, it's 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 not enough for it to to have a major impact, which is part of the reason that that the the Red Army is able to hold them off. Fair. But what this ends up doing is like significantly weakening Kerensky 
in perceived power, right? Because he's for, he's forced to request Bolshevik and Soviet assistance, which mm-hmm. means that he doesn't have the power to do it on his own, which makes people kind of wonder what... What's the point? Why, why are you here? Yeah, why have the Duma? This all comes to a head when, a- after this coup, the, uh, the Bolshevik leadership in... Uh, Petrograd, which uh, includes mainly Trotsky. He's kind of running things on the ground here. He's been released from from prison at this point. Uh, vote to attempt their own coup of the, the provisional government. Um, Lenin had been busy writing more treatises, uh, you know, in, in Finland, but, you know, was in correspondence with the leadership, but wasn't actually on the ground for any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that the, the working class of Russia at this point is four maybe 5% of the population. This is the population that this, that this uh, revolution is peasants, you know, it's, it's, it it really is a a country of subsistence farmers. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. Still, still even, even 50 years after the, uh, the emancipation, most people are farming. It's not heavily industrialized at all. So yeah, when we're, when we're talking about these, these Soviets and, and being worker run, that's the that's the segment of population that's running them. When we're talking about Lenin wanting to run a you know worker-led revolution, these are the people he wants to run it for. The argument that you need capitalism as a middle step makes more sense now, because mm-hmm. yeah. it will help facilitate the transition of subsistence farmers to working class. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the thought there. So the Petrograd Soviet votes to back a coup and uh they begin working away at it but the provisional government gets word of it and on the 6th of november 1917 the uh the provisional government uh begins shutting down petrograd under martial law they uh shut down several like bolshevik sympathetic newspapers known bolshevik organizations things like that but even with all of that warning it's too little too late there is a full-scale revolt on the 7th where tens of thousands of soldiers uh, supporting the Bolsheviks march on the Winter Palace, where the the provisional government is running. And the next day, the the palace is captured from the provisional government, and the uh, Bolsheviks declare um, the Duma dissolved. Power is transferred exclusively to the Soviets. Um, There is no more representative body that exists in Russia. And uh, at least nominally, as leader of the Bolsheviks, uh, Lenin is now uh, leader of Russia. He had, he had come back from Finland in like October when it seemed like there was going to be no more trouble from the government. They'd become too weak. But this this fighting is mainly, as I said, organized by Trotsky. He just sort of steps in and takes leadership from uh, the, the Bolsheviks who have been fighting on the ground. Hmm. One of the first things that the Bolsheviks do, because there is this sense of an obligation to communist rule, there's this idea in communism of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which a lot of people focus on the word dictatorship as though it means there is going to be like a dictator, um, mainly because of the association with, with the USSR, specifically Stalin. But that's not what Marx meant by it at all. It, he, he meant that there should be... Essentially, what he was pointing to was the, the any workers should have a vote and a, a co-equal vote in a in a democracy style setting, and anyone who's not a worker shouldn't have a say in it. At least early on in the 
in a transition. That's how you get that transition to a truly uh, communist society. Once once everybody is on board with communism, then you no longer need that small sub or that that subsection of uh, society running things. But without that phase of dictatorship of the proletariat, uh, you you won't get there. But what Marx was envisioning was a significant percentage of the population being involved in that dictatorship, not four or five percent. In in this more what Marx had in mind framework, what would the non-workers look like? Like, who are they? Just, just the bureaucrats? Yeah. He, he's, he's talking specifically about the, the bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeoisie. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when, when you're reading Marx, it's very binary when it comes to stuff like that. Like you're either working class or you're not. And not working class is anybody who doesn't, uh, sell their labor essentially. It gets more complicated than that, obviously, but we're we're trying to yeah. keep moving along here. Uh, yeah, it's 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 very much like if you if you if you have a means of generating a living that is not working for wages, then you're not a worker. Hmm. So, with this kind of democratic bent in mind, one of the first things that the Bolsheviks do is set up a constituent assembly and an, an election for it. And they're banking on that groundswell of support that they've had. But while they have all of this support in the major urban centers, they don't have that much support outside of the cities. And what ends up happening is that the Bolsheviks win 25% of the support in the constituent assembly. The SRs gain more than 40%. And depending on who you lump into that faction, because there are so many different versions, it could be counted as high as like 58%. The SRs wow. clean up because who are the SRs claiming to represent and who do the SRs want to give power to? I can't keep track of all these people the, and their allegiances at this point. The, pe the peasants. Okay. And that's yes. who most of Russia is. And yeah. so you've got the Bolsheviks talking about, you know, workers' rights, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a bunch of people in, you know, in, in, in some little farm somewhere going like, okay, but I just want to own the product of the land that i work can i do that please and the srs are like yeah that's what we've been talking about all along that's what we yeah. stand for so yeah it's it's understandable how they would have gotten support and the bolsheviks and here here's where i think the bolsheviks become absolutely inexcusable uh if you could already if you could make excuses up to this point which is that once they saw that they weren't winning support beyond the cities the Bolsheviks basically went, well, this is maybe a bad idea and dissolved the entire constituent assembly. Yeah, democracy sucks. It didn't work. It's clearly failed because we didn't win. Um, you know, you've 100% you've lost me on that. Uh, there's, there's very little I can say on that. Yeah, there's hindsight, right? But like, sure. it seems like there's just a, a failure to understand what Marx was going for. Yeah, I would agree. Because if you're if you're trying to it's not the workers being workers that it's important. It's that the fact that the workers are most of the population that's important. That's my that's my interpretation here. And yeah. you want to represent most of the population. And if they're not the workers, then you're not representing most of the population and the whole idea falls apart. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's, I think there's a little more nuance to that in that what Marx was focused on is not necessarily the population, but in the, uh, like in specific ideas about property and labor. But what I think 
what I think that the Bolsheviks are failing to recognize necessarily is that when Marx is writing about it, he's assuming an industrialized society already. And because of that, he's assuming a framework of property and of labor that is essentially factory based. It's industrial based. And if you're coming at it from an agrarian society, what you're talking about, you know, from a Marxist framework is there's this idea in liberalism and it's, it's, it's a, it's a misguided one, but we'll, we'll work with it. It's what Marx is reacting against, which is that a thing as it exists in nature doesn't necessarily have inherent value or inherent ownership. And the thing that imbues it with ownership is improvement through work. So you can't really own a tree, but you can chop down a tree and turn it into a cabinet. And now that cabinet is something that you own and that you could sell. You have imbued it with value and you uh, have owned uh, imbued it with ownership through your work. Now, we, we could... especially you and I, but in general, we could (laughs) could discuss that all day because there are, there are massive issues in terms of both where those ideas come from and what the implications of those ideas are. But that's where Marx is coming from. What I feel like the Bolsheviks are failing to recognize is that if those are the, if those are the rules you're playing by, which Marx was, if those are the rules you're playing by and reacting against, you're not looking in the factories necessarily in in Russia. What you're looking at is these peasants who are scraping uh, production out of the ground that they don't own. Yeah. And that I I think was a, was a, was a blind spot for them because what ends up happening is the Bolsheviks are kind of looking at all these peasants going like, well, they just don't understand. Like they're not educated enough to understand like how, you know, how important all of this stuff is and blah, blah, blah. And it becomes, yeah, it becomes really gross really fast. Right. And that's that's the problem of, of such a small focused movement is that you can't just expect everyone to be on your level, especially when you spend so much time refining and debating all of this stuff. Like there is there is a there is a an obligation that goes along with leadership, I think, to educate and to present a case as to why you should be the leader rather than just, you know, you saying because I know what's best. I'm not really sure that that's. You can't really argue that that's any better than any other authoritarian system of of leadership, right? But that's the trap that the Bolsheviks sort of fall into here. They also bar non-Bolsheviks from member, membership in Soviets, which now are the <laughs> only, on. which are now the only real method of of uh, you know governance, right? Oh, this is this is sad. They immediately begin, the Bolsheviks immediately begin uh, negotiating withdrawal from the war because that is one of the things that they they promised and it's one of the things the provisional government failed to do. These negotiations are disastrous. The Bolsheviks in general are so much more interested in getting out of the war than coming up with anything halfway decent that uh, the the terms are just terrible. Uh, This is known as the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. It's signed in March of 1918. It ends Russia's participation in World War I and sues for peace with Austria-Hungary, Ottoman Empire, Germany. In exchange for that peace, they lose Finland, Ukraine, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, others. Uh, It's a third of the population of the former Russian Empire is no longer under uh, Russian control. Are these nations and states you're describing, are, are they considered actual nations and states at this point? Or is this just areas that 
they've said you don't get those anymore. I mean, there are there are historical sort of there are historical regions. Um, You know, Finland had been a grand duchy kind of separate from from Russia for a very long time. But like this is where they're gaining their independence just because of this treaty. These were fully Russian territories before this. Half of the industrial land in Russia is lost in this treaty. I don't know what they're doing representing workers here, but there it goes. A quarter (laughs) of the railways in Russia were in that territory. 90% of the coal mines in Russia were in there. The impetus is to get rid of the war. It's just to get out of the war. No, I get that. What's why... Why are they being asked to give these things Ah, up? To create buffer states between them and Germany. Okay. Essentially. You can go invade Finland again if you want. Maybe punishment as well, to some extent. That's kind of what I was thinking, maybe. There there is also monetary penalties here. Of course. But that's what gets, gets them out of the war. And the popular support for the Bolsheviks plummets. It is extremely unpopular for obvious reasons. And the Bolsheviks are going, what? You asked us to get rid of the war. It's gone now. They they just... <laughs> Insert Nathan Fillion reaction gif here. Yeah. It, they just they just completely lose, I don't know, some sort of perspective between 1917 and 1918. It's it's wild. There, it, it's, it's so bad that the, the all of the enemies, everybody who's ever been an enemy of a Bolshevik, basically coalesces into this uh this this alliance that's built entirely on hating bolsheviks that would never never work together normally like you have landowners who are losing property to to revolting peasants are in this group the peasants who are feeling underrepresented uh, underrepresented are fighting alongside those landlords in this group uh liberals republicans uh conservatives monarchists who still want the czar back He's still alive at this point in time, by the way. Foreign powers are getting involved. This is known as the White Army. This is often misconstrued as a czarist force, that they are Mm. committed to bringing back the czar. That's not true. That is a way it was categorized by enemies of the White Army, and it's also a bit of an oversimplification of the fact that there were a few czarists in this group. But these these people are all united entirely by their burning hatred of the Bolsheviks. They would never work yeah. together otherwise. And a civil war breaks out. You know, th- we, we can go we can go step by step through the, the civil war, but the long story short here is that uh, the, the Red Army ends up winning. They push back the White Army and take uh, military control of the entire country of Russia. There is also a lot of foreign inve- uh, uh, intervention here. This is the kind of thing where sometimes gets portrayed as being anti-communist, that all of these uh, countries get together and invade Russia and support the White Army because they're against Bolshevism. And it's not that that isn't true to some extent. It's not that that sentiment isn't there sometimes. Uh, Churchill is a notable like anti-Bolshevist uh, mm-hmm. in this era. There's a there's a quote somewhere about smothering Bolshevism in the cradle or something like that that's kind of... Yikes. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Pump the brakes Churchill. a little. You know, come on, guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in general, what's going on here is that the allied forces in World War One go, yo, hang on. You were supposed to be holding down the Eastern Front. Now Germany is able to concentrate all of their forces on the West. This sucks. Can we open up the Eastern Front again? So they're sending troops to basically attack the Eastern Front of Germany to try and keep their 
forces split. They're worried that this has prolonged the war. Yeah. They're also mad about the fact that Britain and France put a significant amount of war material into Russia, like supporting them like materially with guns and technology that they don't necessarily want the Germans to have. And they're trying yeah. to kind of get it back before it goes over to Germany in case of a German uh, alliance, which is the other thing that they're worried about. They're afraid that they're going to that Russia is going to team up with Germany. They think that it might not have been just a peace treaty. It might have actually been a changing of alliance. And while that may sound a little bit paranoid, keep in mind, A, all of the treaties that existed in secret before World War One that led to World War One. Mm-hmm. And B, that they wouldn't be the only power that had switched sides in this conflict. Italy famously had switched sides. So all of that stuff is kind of on the table. And no, it doesn't really come to pass. And yes, the white army is defeated. But, you know, it is it is a big problem for a lot of these uh, other powers. Uh, you know, just the fact that the Bolsheviks are are in power is is really worrisome for them but specifically that they withdrew from the war as early as they did. There's also this kind of existential problem with the Bolshevik revolution for the rest of the powers, which is that, yes, it is the fact that they're putting communism into practice, and they do very quickly like nationalize a lot of industries and uh, you know, make private commerce illegal, and like there's, there's massive uh, economic changes right away. Um, but it's also the fact that... like. All those powers that we talked about being in place at the beginning of 1900 and would soon collapse but haven't yet, still haven't collapsed. Russia is the first one of those old imperial powers to completely crumble. And the writing's on the wall for a lot of the other ones. And some of the ones that don't seem as obvious are, are coming up too. So, you know, by the end of 1918, you're looking at the loss of the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You're looking at the loss of the German Empire. There will be revolts and civil wars in a lot of these uh, former empires as they figure out what the future looks like. But none of that has happened yet. And there's this concern that Bolshevism, mm-hmm. which which is an explicitly transnational ideology, right? Like there is like communism at its core is this idea of crossing uh, uh, national boundaries along class lines, right? It is a, it is a class solidarity movement. It is explicitly looking to trigger similar revolutions in other countries, right? There's this worry in the first year or so of the existence of the USSR that, um, or of, of communist Russia, I should say, because USSR isn't founded until um, 1922, but we're splitting hairs there. There's this worry that in the instability of the war, or possibly the instability following the war, that the Bolsheviks will be able to pull off similar uh, topplings of crumbling empires and replace them with communist uh, regimes. Now, that doesn't end up happening. There are Bolshevik movements uh, shortly after the war. None of them win. It'll be a while before you see successful communist movements after the Russian Revolution. The Some of those countries we talked about being spun off in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, some of them are rolled back into Russia. Other ones are nominally uh, independent, but get drawn into the USSR umbrella 
So mm-hmm. they're technically not Russia, but they are part of the USSR. That's uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics for for anyone that's unfamiliar with the the acronym. It's this idea that like I think there were fifteen different republics within the within the federation, and like yeah, it's all being led from central governance from the 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 Communist Party, which is you know, was originally the Bolshevik party, but, you know, technically there's some separate countries there and they'll end up being separate after the fall of the USSR. Anyways, I'm, I'm all over the place here during, <laughs> during this, during this, uh, civil war. Um, it's incredibly bloody. Like it's, it's, you know, the, 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 the conflict itself, you know, you're talking about like 300,000 soldiers killed in action, uh, 450,000 just military from diseases. Um, Yikes. Yeah. Not to mention civilian casualties, which are not well recorded, but numerous. There's also a typhus outbreak in 1920 that kills, uh, I've seen numbers around 3 million Russians. Um, Got, uh, gotta love those 20s. Always a fun time. You know, <laughs> uh, there was what's known as the Red Terror, which is explicitly modeled on the terror of the French Revolution in which the Bolsheviks target political enemies. Mm. Yeah. And this targeting of, of political enemies is, again, incredibly bloody. The unknown casualties. I, I Modest numbers that I saw were like 50,000 political executions. That's There's. So pr- the displacement or uh, execution of a hundred thousand Jewish people in Ukraine. Uh, now a lot of that is by the White Army, but I again don't know why we would be splitting hairs on that one. There are between three hundred thousand and five hundred thousand Cossacks deported. The, the Cossacks were a kind of paramilitary. Uh, somewhat religious group uh in part of russia i think the best uh uh, analogy would be like the spartans in greece where they were just like a little more hardcore um is is the best version i've got they were they were a little more czarist but and and that was used as an excuse to displace them and take a lot of land from them all all of this stuff is i i don't mean to rush through it at the end because uh you know it's not worth lingering on it's more to point out the fact that uh, you know, I, I'm 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 more just out of time, but like I still want to point out the fact that like once in power, it's not as though this turns into a, a nice little utopia where they just sort of nationalize all the industries and and uh, centralize agricultural requisition and rationing. I mean, they do that too, but there is a a very hardcore like expulsion of political enemies that comes out. Yeah, of all the of way this. the way you do a thing matters. Yes. Yeah. And, and the way they did it is, is extremely brutal. And it's, it's, you know, to, to get on a, a soapbox a little bit, it's, it's no wonder people have the, the, the image or had the image of communism that they did for the first several decades of the Soviet Union, when that's literally the only example that they have. Now, I've pointed out in the past that if you look at democracy or, or republicanism in, you know, about 1800, with France as the example, it might not look like the the most uh, uh, appealing uh, philosophy either based on the actions of that government. You need time to yeah. sort of see actually good, positive uh, examples of something before it becomes uh, a little more acceptable. And, and republicanism was given that chance in a lot of other places in a way that communism never really was. Um, but if you're looking specifically at the example of the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution, yeah, I mean, it's 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 not hard to hold that up and say like, let's look this bad. 
yeah, don't do this. Don't do this. It's, it's real bad. As I said, by 1922, Soviet Union is created. Uh, Lenin dies in, in 1924. And I think that's as good a place to stop as any, because after that, leadership is passed on to Stalin. Uh, by most accounts, after Lenin basically said, please give the leadership to anybody other than Stalin. No, oh, Yes, I think I remember that in... <laughs> Your episode on communism, um, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, Lenin's death is as good a place to stop as any because it's fairly close to the end of the revolution, and so much changes with Stalin that that it becomes its own new thing. But yeah, we're we're also very much out of time, and uh, and we we covered a lot of ground today, but. You got to pick somewhere to stop, I suppose. So <laughs> that's that's the Russian Revolution. What you see here is a, uh, I, I think a. a at best, a very misguided attempt at trying to force things along when they shouldn't be, and uh, you know, at worst, uh, genocide on on multiple axes, um, which, to be fair, is is something you could say about a lot of revolutions. Um, yeah. But when you're looking specifically at the Russian one, yeah, there's there's a lot of bad to hold up there. Thoughts, questions, comments. No, I think I voiced most of them along the way. Okay, that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a lot to take in. Um, do you do you in general feel like you have a little bit better sense of how you get from an imperial Russia to a a Soviet Union? Uh, yeah, sort of for sure. Like how how those players kind of influence the game as you go along. You know, the cadets getting sidelined as as uh, the the Duma kind of struggles for. Um, legitimacy, how the Bolsheviks are able to just kind of sit back and let things crumble and take credit for it, things like that. It almost plays out Shakespearean. Like it's, a it's, it's a tragedy. It's it's a it's a tragedy. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. There, there's there's absolutely countless places in this story that uh, a small difference would have completely changed the course of things, and we'd be talking about a very very different story, more so than many events in history, right? But that's what revolutions are. They're such tur uh, turbulent times that the smallest things have have huge consequences down the road. So, but yeah, the the, the emergence of communism in Russia specifically is such a such an odd duck. You know, it, it's it's been said by by many many people. I'm not the first one to observe it, but like it's the last place that it would make sense to come up. It's a it's an agrarian society. It has a tiny workforce. It's uh, uh, you know. It's not, it's not what Marx ever envisioned, and not that he's the be-all and end-all on any of this stuff, but the fact that a, a faction explicitly touting Marx is the one that ends up in power calling the shots over all of this is a really strange thing about all of this. Yeah. Fascinating topic. I gotta give your, uh, your communist episode, communism episode a re-listen now with uh, this information. See how that shakes out. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason I left this specific chunk of it. Uh, out of that episode, it would have yeah. lengthened considerably, but it it does definitely add some context in there. Similarly, uh, listening to the Industrial Revolution uh, episode is great context for a lot of the struggle. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, well, I really appreciate you coming on today. I really enjoyed this topic. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really good. Thank you. We'll have to do it again soon. Yeah. Nicholas II and his family were executed by Bolshevik forces in 1918, and whether or not the order came from Lenin is disputed to this day. 
The Bolsheviks implemented a complete nationalization of the economy and abolition of private property the same year, known as war communism, before being forced to roll back to some capitalist mechanisms under the new economic policy in the face of a peasant base that did not understand why the land and labor they had finally won in 1861 was being taken from them again. And internationally, as the dust settled on the First World War, countries across the globe looked to the Bolsheviks as a threat of what could happen to them, creating a specter of authoritarian communism that would shape the 20th century. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I couldn't remember exactly how French succession proceeded after Napoleon, which was a little embarrassing. The answer there is a Bourbon restoration that would last until 1830, but as mentioned, Louis XVIII only ever ruled over a constitutional monarchy. While many of the changes of the French Revolution were rolled back, there would never be another absolute French monarch. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Hi.